Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Smith and Lesson. Um, I'm trying to remember the others. Recorded? Uh, Charter Arms. They all typically follow. Uh, typically have a, a cylinder release that you push forward on the Smith, pull back on the Colt. On the Dan Wesson, who was a relative of Smith and Wesson, so he wouldn't, wouldn't uh, uh, be in conflict, he put his, his cylinder release up on the front of the crane, in front of the cylinder. Um, that's why his pistol never really became popular with police because it was just too much longer to, too much harder to reload. Um, Colt revolvers seem to be much, much more highly refined and seem to cost a lot more money and therefore were less of them sold. So then they quit making certain models, so that creates the demand keeps the price up higher on them, so it creates a more collector's value to the Colt, whereas the Smith & Wessons were a little bit more uh, better priced and easier to operate because of the push-forward cylinder. Police liked them a lot better in most instances. Most police departments bought more Smiths, so they made millions more of them, so there's more of them on the market and wider varieties of cartridges and calibers than there ever was with the Colts. And so consequently... There's more of them out there at a cheaper price, and so and a greater selection of them. So that kind of keeps the price down. Although all the new handguns are are starting to climb in price, and they're just starting to get ridiculous. And anything decent is, you know, really five hundred dollars and 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 higher. There are a few exceptions to that, uh, like we've talked about the. Uh, Arm score imported from the Philippine 45s. Those were 389 wholesale. Uh, you still have to get your dealer to order that and pay him whatever he wants, 30 to 50 dollars plus shipping and any state fees that you have and sales tax and et cetera, et cetera. So you're still probably in the 450 range uh, minimum with one of those through the dealer once it's in your hands. And that that would be a good pistol. I'm not. No, don't get me wrong. I've recommended those. Uh, but if you want, if you want something, you know, in, in a brand name Colt, or or um, uh, you want a, uh, you know, in a Kimber or something like that, you're going to be paying uh, north of eight hundred dollars or better. And the Kimbers, most of those brand new uh, guns are going to be in the eleven, twelve hundred, thirteen hundred dollar price range. That's a lot of money. And instead of, you know, if you're like I say, if you're, you know. Got to watch those dollars. Got to have all that food. You know, remember beans, rice, and bullets. It's not all just about guns. Although we're having an extended talk about guns tonight, it's not all about guns. I'd rather you have a lot of a lot of food for your family and all the things that you need to take care of your family to include a firearm or two or three dozen and you know twenty or thirty thousand rounds of ammunition. But you can, you know, take, I'm talking about a whole family group there when I talk like that. I'm being a little facetious, but I'm talking about, you know, you're not going to stay awake 24 hours a day and and do this for yourself. You, you're going to have to have help 
and you all need to have firearms uh, and, and weapons to protect yourself and your family and your cachet of food. Protect what's yours. When, you know, if, it, if we get down to an ugly post-apocalyptic uh, scenario or situation, uh, we get the government decides to pull a Joseph Stalin on us, you know, uh, and, you know, and it's, and it's looking more like that every day. They're going to need these firearms to do this. And the reason why I wanted to recap this is so you get a better idea of what you need and what to use and, and, and why and, and therefore. Uh, back to the revolvers. You know, we have basically automatic pistols and revolvers. And then there's uh, a series, Thompson Contender, and there's a couple of more off-brands, off which are single-shot, break-open, uh, load the pistol cartridge in there, and and, uh, and they actually make some of those barrels. You can The, the Thompson Contender is a, is a receiver, serial-numbered receiver. It comes with one barrel and one caliber, and you can change it. You can buy different calibers and different barrel lengths, but they're single shot. They're primarily designed for handgun hunting, although they do have 14-inch barrels and, and rifle cartridges for these pistols, receivers. That's one of those anomalies that crosses back and forth across the line. So like I said, not everything's cast in stone. Not everything's welded up in steel. Uh, there are... There are uh, things that float back and forth between. I'll touch on a higher rated, higher forms of military weapons here a little bit. We have a classification of machine guns uh, called SAWs, squad automatic weapons. And you know, the way the military is, is uh, organized, it's organized in a five-man team, two five-man teams with a squad leader in a squad and three to four squads in a platoon. Three combat platoons plus a support platoon and a headquarters platoon in a company. Five companies in a battalion. Average platoon is between 30 and 40 men, depending on its strength. And, and, and very rarely is a, is a platoon ever at full strength. So, in that five-man team, one of those guys is going to have SAW, Squad Automatic Weapon. That's a one-man-operated machine gun, belt-fed, rapid-fire. In the Soviet military, it could be an RPK or an RPD. The RPD was a belt-fed that had a drum that held the belt. That's all it was, was a container to hold the belt keep the belt from getting dirt and crud and everything in it. And RPK was a true drum-fed magazine, 75 or 100-round drum magazine. There was no belt, you had to, but you had to load it and then wind it up. Some of you out there can buy the 75-round drums now. The 100-rounders are long gone, haven't been, been available in the country for 15 years. And if you find one at a show, they're just ridiculously priced in the $500 range. Not worth it for 75 bucks at the CDNN out of Texas, you can get the 75-round run for the AK delivered. Um, so back to the belt-fed squad automatic weapon. Uh, commonly right now we use the Fabrique Nationale saw. It uses a 200-round belt, 5.56, or 
commonly referred to in the United States as the 223. It's the same cartridge that the M16 uses. Now, in that variation of the squad automatic weapon, I have no problem with that cartridge because the reality is in a suppressive fire, and suppressive fire is fire higher rates of fire from a weapon to pin the enemy's heads down while your riflemen get maneuvered into position to shoot them with precision, well-aimed, disciplined fire. And your squad automatic weapon is, while you would optimally like to hit somebody with that fire, it's not its point. Its point is to spread lots of bullets down and make that other side keep their head down. That's what the saw, the squad automatic weapon. Now, before they had this weapon, and this weapon's been around now for about 25 years in the Army inventory, they had the M60 machine gun, and that was in 308. It was a bigger, heavier bullet, which was kind of backwards. They had our battle rifle and the little teeny pitsqueak cartridge and our general-purpose machine gun at the squad level and the big heavy-duty rifle cartridge. should be exactly the opposite, but at least right now it's on parity. They had both cartridges for the, the battle rifle and the and the uh, suppressive fire weapon. Now the M60, and it was still that way in the Navy, it's still used, and in certain Air Force units. But in the Marine Corps and the Army, they upgraded to the FN MAG, which they call the, the it, it, it was also an FN Fabric National Belgian design. And you're going to find out, and as you get to know more about firearms, that whenever you hear Fabric National or FN, you can also think of John Brown. Because a lot of Browning designs went to Belgium and got made by them. Like the Browning High Power, if you'll be at a gun show, they'll, some of them will say Morgan, Utah, or Herstal, Belgium. And that's a, that's a dual gun. If it, you know, that, depending on what year of uh, manufacture, whether it'll say strictly Utah or both Utah and Belgium. So that's, that's where that all comes from. And so that's called an M240 in the military, the FN MAG, MAG-58. It was originally designed in 1958. It's a really good machine gun. Um, it is the offspring of the 1919 uh, belt-fed machine gun, the 30 caliber made famous in, in the tail end of World War One, but very famous during World War Two and Korea as as the uh, as the premier machine gun on the battlefield in the 30 caliber range. A 50 caliber Browning machine gun is just an upscaled version of the 30 caliber with a much bigger bullet, of course. So the 30 caliber Browning machine gun and its error back in World War II Korea was a crew-served weapon. It had a gunner, an assistant gunner who carried the spare barrel and some ammunition, and then an ammo bearer, so it was three men. The squad automatic weapon, which is an M249, 5.56, is a single-man weapon. And a general machine gun like the M60 was crew-served or team. It had a gunner, and occasionally they would assign uh, an ammo bearer to go with that, but it wouldn't, it wouldn't always three guys. Most of the time, whenever I was around an M60, it was just two of us. You had a tripod, and you had a spare barrel with a barrel bag, and, and somebody had to have carry all this stuff for you because the gun weighed 26 pounds with just its bipod 
and and uh, that was empty. I had to have another uh, eight pounds of ammunition hanging off of the hundred round belt. Then you go up from there, and the machine guns become what's called cruiser, where they actually literally do have to have three guys or five guys to run them because you've got to have plenty of people bringing ammunition, and they're they're so much heavier, you know. A uh, 50 caliber Browning machine gun weighs 86 pounds. That's a lot of weight. And when we transported them around in a ground element, they're usually vehicle mounted, but occasionally they'd want you to go run up a hill and set one up. You'd take the barrel off. And one guy would carry the barrel, and the other guy would carry the receiver, and then another guy would carry the tripod, and then the other guys are trying to carry a couple of cans of ammunition up there. Doesn't take long to figure out. That's a whole lot of people, so it's just better to stick them on armored personnel carriers and tanks and Humvees and, and call it good. You see a lot of these weapons, if you get the movie Black Hawk Down, you'll see the, the, the M249 and the M240 and the M250 caliber Browning machine gun. Uh, Browning machine gun's been around, the 50 caliber's been around uh, since before World War II, and there's there's uh, now a couple of times they've tried to replace it. They tried to design something better, and it turned out to be a piece of junk. And they always go back to the Browning 50 caliber. It's a time. It's a timeless. It's like a like a C-130 Hercules aircraft. They, they can't replace it. It's just they can't figure out. They can't make something better than what they've already got. They can just do slight tweaking and refinements, and that's what they're doing. If you find yourself in a post-apocalyptic world where things have broken down, these are very handy weapons to get your paws on. Uh, and I'm not saying that they won't be available, and there's, you know, uh, a, lot of, a lot of opportunity for things like that to fall into your hands when, uh, when, there's, uh, when there's a war going on. The Civil War, an invasion by a foreign army, they bring similar type weapons. Um, the Soviets have the equivalent to the 50 caliber the Basca, it's 12.5 or 12.7 millimeter, which is just 51 caliber. Our irony of it, uh, you know, it's uh, just a, a smidgen, smidgen bigger than the 50 caliber machine gun. It's uh, similar in operation and design. Uh, not exactly identical, but, but very close. Um, there are other weapons now that have... Uh, uh, called the Mark 19. It resembles a 50 caliber Browning machine gun, except it's got a short, stubby barrel, and it's 40 millimeter. And it's a belt-fed automatic grenade launcher. It's pretty impressive. It'll, it's not overly fast firing like a machine gun, but it is pretty impressive for what it is and what it can do. And it can throw a lot of little hand grenades downrange. And it look like giant uh, 45 rounds, but, but uh, 40 millimeter in diameter. And they'll go, oh, uh, those automatic rounds will go about 900 yards when they have a, uh, a, a 10 meter bursting range. So they can be quite deadly, and you can saturate an area pretty quick with quite a few of those rounds and uh, make the other side go ouch quickly. Other crew serve weapons, uh, then they start getting up into the uh, 26 uh, or 25 millimeter uh, chain guns that you'll find on the Bradley Infantry Fighting Vehicle. Um, 
And, of course, that then is, is a complete crew of the whole team in the vehicle and the gun. And uh, as far as small arms within the military, there's a thing called a Carl Gustav. That's a recoilless rifle. We use special uh, uh, ammunition holes in the case to uh, blow off uh, the pressure so that a man can fire a pretty large projectile. It's about 30-something millimeter, um, but it's about a foot long. No um, but it, it's uh, very, you know, they had recoilless rifles in World War II. They had a 70 millimeter and a hundred and I think it was 105 or 107 millimeter, 76 millimeter and 107 millimeter. The 107 millimeter was Jeep mounted, and the other one was actually uh, uh, carried. Um, um, it was shoulder fired, some, similar to a bazooka. If you uh, the movie Uncommon Valor has Patrick Swayze firing uh, the 76 millimeter uh, recoilless rifle in, in, that, in that show. And uh, the Carl Gustav is a little smaller than that. It's just a refinement of that, and it's uh, powerful enough to knock out knock out some light-skinned armor and tread on tanks and actually actually uh, hurt the other side. In fact, um, you'll see the Carl Gustav in the new new make of the uh, movie War of the Worlds at the end when they're killing the last. Uh, They've got a rocket launcher and a, and a recordless rifle, and a recordless rifle is a Carl Gustav. Um, you know, we don't have bazookas anymore, and that, that's what the Carl Gustav replaces that. And then most of our, and the other things that replace our bazookas, AT-4s and things like that, uh, during Vietnam in that area, we had what's called the law, light anti-tank weapon. But that's proven not to be very powerful, so they've, you know, uh, replaced it. But these are all things you might, uh, somewhere along the line, uh, come in contact with, especially if you live near a uh, arms depot. They're busily destroying that stuff right now. But if, you know, post-apocalyptic world and no one's left there to guard the gate, well, go in and help yourself. You know, if the rules are gone, the rules are gone. In the meantime, obey the laws. Don't violate any of that stuff. Uh, but get the books. Gather the knowledge. Listen to survival time. Uh, learn more about firearms, uh, food uh, food storage, uh, camping, equipment, field gear, kit, first aid, medical. We'll cover it all. Try to cover as much of it as possible. If you got any questions, you can either email them or you can uh, give us a call next show. And uh, we do definitely thank you for listening. And, by the way, thanks for making us number one. And... For those of you who do, enjoy the holidays that you're going to enjoy in the right frame of mind. Uh, I don't I don't follow after it because of the pagan pagan aspects of it. I do you do know I am a, a, a devout Christian and follow follow Christ. But I do want to wish you all a, a, a good night and God bless. And uh, like I say, this is survival time and I am your host, Richard McGregor, and we'll talk to you next week. A woman and the kids and the dogs and me I got a shotgun, a rifle and a four-wheel drive And a country boy can survive Country folks can survive I can 
flower field all day long. I can catch catfish from dusk till dawn. Make our own whiskey and our own smoke too. Ain't too many things these old boys can't do. And homemade wine And country boy can survive Country folk can survive Because you can't Food prices going up Homes being foreclosed Unemployment insurance running out Jobs leaving the country Many people cannot afford to eat Or keep a roof over their head Too many can do Messiah's Branch has a mission church in Wichita, Kansas that helps the victims of this banker's economy, the American people, your neighbors. The mission is the last hope for so many Americans. We need your help to lift up the poorest of the poor. These are men, women, and children who once had homes, now in the street. They all need what you need, first aid, beds, food, clothing, and so on. You can send a monitor. West 4th Street, Florence, Kansas, 66851. Or donate online by going to wichitahomeless.com. Or simply call 
never don't like my big red barn. A 47 Ford bullet holes in the door broke down motor in the front yard. <laughs> I gotta have a mind to paint a plywood sign and nail it up on a knotty pine tree. Saying I was here first, this is my piece of dirt and your rambling don't rattle me. And you're listening right here on American Voice Radio Network. It is Friday, December 25th, 2015. It's about seven and a half minutes after noon Pacific time, and it is Christmas Day. So, anyhow, I don't personally uh, actually celebrate Christmas, but... Merry Christmas to everybody out there. And hey, why not? You know, you can be merry tomorrow too if you'd like. And if you're there and you're bored and you've got nothing else to do today, 
Or even if you do, you can call in 800-932-1980. Or you can go to the chat room. There's surprisingly uh, only one person in there. And I suspect they're lurking because people have things to do, places to go, people to see today. And hey, what better day to do that than today? I thought about, gee, you know, I should just, uh, I should get my truck and just drive around town just because there's no traffic for once in my life anymore. You know, probably right now there's, well, who knows, man? I don't know what's going on if there's, is there sales today? You know, the Christmas Day sale, beat the rush, stump your family, get to the store. Yeah, I don't know. Well, anyways, uh, let's, uh, you know, let's get to some news and things. Because, hey, you know, the world moves on anyway. Even though it's Christmas, stuff still happens. All right, let's see. This here is from uh, Oregon. Frustrated Creswell man releases flock of chickens in Eugene tax office. <laughs> A Creswell man apparently upset with the State Revenue Office, released a flock of chickens inside the agency's field office near Valley River Center on Wednesday. A Eugene police officer responded to the State Department of Revenue Office about 12.20 p.m. shortly after the man, identified as Louis J. Alder, 66 years old, released seven chickens in the office lobby. The officer and the responding animal welfare officer gathered up the birds and took them to the First Avenue shelter. Representatives of the Green Hill Humane Society, remember, we are talking about chickens here, you know, the ones we uh, chop their heads off, throw in a pot, cook up and eat? Yeah, yeah, the Humane Society is on the job here. And they operate the shelter, and they did not immediately return messages for comment. And Alder couldn't immediately be reached for comment either. There were no injuries to human or fowl. Derek Gasperni, the state agency spokesman and, and office employees, had prior dealings with Alder and that he was frustrated with the outcome. Yes, aren't we all when we deal with the state? Gasperni had no further details about the source of Adler's frustrations with the tax agency office. Officers gave Alder a trespass notice requiring him to stay away from the office or face a citation, police spokeswoman Melinda McLaughlin said. McLaughlin said the chickens did no damage to the office, but did leave behind a bit of poop. And boy, that's exactly what they deserve at the tax office, a truckload of poop. But hey, you know, I wonder, it's like, wait a minute, so... Trespass notice. So he can't go to the tax office anymore. Oh, well, thank you. I guess I don't owe any more taxes, because if you're forbidding me to come and pay them, then you're forbidding me from paying them, which is fine with me. I wonder how they'll enforce, hey, we want that taxes, but you can't come in here. Oh? Hmm. 
All right, let's get to something else here. Like I said, I love lists. And I've got another one. There's like 72 of them. But you'll like this list, too. I mean, the other list was pretty good, too. But, you know, these, the, this is, I mentioned this yesterday, and I might have got through, I don't know, five of the, of the things on the list. And we'll start from the beginning again. But extremism and what the White House, what this administration considers extremism. This list was made based on government documents, speeches by government officials and such concerning extremism. Anyhow, those that talk about individual liberties. See, this is this is one of those you might be an extremist if sort of lists. Okay, but this it's not really a joke. I mean, some of it is ridiculous and, and maybe funny in a way, but it's not funny because this is gathered from actual government documents and speeches by actual government officials. Everything on this list has been mentioned as extreme by the government in one way or another. Okay, so... The comedy kind of leaves the room when, when you take into account that that's the fact, but we'll go on. Those that advocate for states' rights, those that want to make the world a better place, those terrible, horrible people that want to make the world a better place, man, oh man. The colonists who sought to free themselves from British rule and founded this country. Those that are interested in defeating the communists. Those that believe that the interests of one's own nation are separate from the interests of other nations or the common interest of all nations. Anyone that holds a political ideology that considers the state to be unnecessary, harmful, or undesirable. Anyone that possesses and intolerance toward other religions. Those that take action to fight against the exploitation of the environment and or animals. Anti-gay, anti-immigrant, anti-Muslim, the Patriot Movement, opposition to equal rights for gays and lesbians. Members of the Family Research Council. Members of the American Family Association. Those that believe that Mexico, Canada, and the United States are secretly planning to merge into a European Union-like entity that will be known as the North American Union. They're not secretly doing this, folks. They're doing it right in front of your face. huh? They're just not calling it that. That's all. It's not secret. I mean, really, is it a secret? That we have an open border? What exactly do you think an open border means? Hey, you know what? You got more trouble on regulation going from European country to European country than you would as an illegal coming across the, the, the southern border here. Well, let's see. 
members of the American Border Patrol, American Patrol, members of the Federation for American Immigration Reform, members of the Tennessee Freedom Coalition, members of the Christian Action Network, anyone that is opposed to the New World Order, anyone that is engaged in conspiracy theorizing, anyone that is opposed to Agenda 21, anyone that is concerned about FEMA camps, anyone that fears impending gun control or weapon confiscations, the militia movement, the sovereign citizen movement, those that don't think they should have to pay taxes, anyone that complains about bias, anyone that believes in government conspiracies to the point of paranoia, anyone that is frustrated with mainstream ideologies, anyone that visits extremist websites or blogs, anyone that establishes websites or blogs to display extremist views, anyone that attends, and now remember, Everything I've read above is an extremist view, so if you have a website about any of that stuff, hey, guess who you are? Anyone that attends rallies for extremist causes, anyone that exhibits extreme religious intolerance, anyone that is personally connected with a grievance, anyone that suddenly acquires weapons, anyone that organizes protests inspired by extremist ideology, Militia or unorganized militia, general right-wing extremists, citizens that have bumper stickers that are patriotic or anti-UN, those that refer to an army of God, those that are fiercely uh, nationalistic as opposed to universal and international in orientation, those that are anti-global, those that are suspicious of centralized federal authority, those that are reverent of individual liberty, those that believe in conspiracy theories, those that have a belief uh, that one's behavior and or national way of life is under attack. Now, you got to understand, everything in the, these things I'm saying, other than those that have, those that say, those that whatever, after that, it's in quotes, Okay. That means they are taking these quotes directly from government documents or speeches made by government officials. Oh, let's see. Those that possess a belief in the need to be prepared for an attack either by participating in paramilitary preparations and training or survivalism. Those that would impose strict religious tenets or laws on society. Those that would insert religion into the political sphere. Anyone that would seek to politicize religion. Those that have supported political movements for autonomy. Anyone that is anti-abortion, anti-Catholic, anti-nuclear, right-wing extremists, returning veterans. Those that are... Uh, concerned about illegal immigration, those that believe in the right to bear arms, anyone that is engaged in ammunition stockpiling, anyone that exhibits fear of communist regimes, anti-abortion activists, those that are against illegal immigration, those that talk about the New World Order in a derogatory manner. See, you're allowed to talk about the New World Order in a good way. Those that have a negative view of the United Nations, those that are opposed to the collection of federal income taxes, those that supported former president candidates Ron Paul, Chuck Baldwin, 
and Bob Barr, those that display the Gadsden flag, which is the don't tread on me flag, those that believe in end-time prophecies and evangelical Christians. Hey, does anybody out there fit fit any of these uh, categories? Or, like, all of them? You know, I mean, really. But that's where we're at, folks. This is the definition. What I just read you is the definition, if you can call it that, of an extremist according to this government. Okay? And okay, you don't have to hit every single one of them. You know, like somebody in the chat room, too, you know, it's like, well, I don't really join groups, so that whole, oh, if you're a member of this group or that group, okay, that doesn't apply to me, but, uh, you know, most of the others, I got to say, yep, 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 yep. So, that is what you have to look forward to with your federal government. And, of course, their lapdogs, the mainstream media, which will promote anything that they tell them to promote, just like as if, as if it was the truth. But, of course, it's not. And, you know, a lot of these things uh, also, if you read them carefully, apply to the government. You know, at least uh, 10 of those things on the list, you could say, now, wait a minute, that sounds like the government. Well, I think everybody out there realizes that the United States government is filled with a bunch of psychopathic extremists. They really are. I mean, they're the biggest extremists out there. They want to take the natural order of things. Okay? Who's extreme here? The people that say, hey, you know, this is the way we've always done it. This is the way it's always been, and it's always worked. Fairly well. Sure, we have a war here and there, but so what? We have continuous war now under your plan. (laughs) Well, you know, the thing is, they are the extremists because they are looking at what is natural, what is normal, what has always gone on, what is traditional, what is cultural. And they want to change it all. They want to do something entirely unnatural. Look. A cat and a dog can get along. To the point where they don't kill each other, okay? Cats and dogs can even seem to like each other. They might cuddle up and sleep together. They might even follow each other around a little bit. But at the end of the day, one's a cat, one's a dog. And they're really not going to mix any further than not killing each other, not having a conflict, living in peace. But they're not going to ever turn in. The cat's not going to turn into a dog. The dog's not going to start meowing. Okay, these things aren't going to happen. And that's what this government and these insane globalists, this is what they want to do. They want to get the cats barking, the dogs meowing, 
you know, and, and change everything that is natu- the natural order of things, and they want a new order of things that is entirely unnatural and forced upon the people. Now, to me, that's a lot more extreme than just saying, hey, why don't we just do what we've always done? Why don't we let them live over there the way they want to live, and we'll live like we want to live over here, and we'll see who does better? No, 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 no. We can't have that. You've all got to live together, whether you like it or not. And, hey, if you give us any trouble with this idea, we'll kill you all. Hey, doesn't that seem a little extreme? So who's the extremist here? Hey, my vote? I say the federal government is the extremist. That's what I say. That's what I think. And I think the evidence uh, kind of backs that up. Who's the, who's the extremist here in the room? I'd say it's the one pointing the finger at everybody else saying, ah, they're all extremists. They're, those are extremists over there. Do you realize that probably that list, if you were going to count maybe three, You've got to hit three of those things on the list to qualify as, yes, you're you're an extremist. You realize that that's probably 80 or 90% of the country? We're all extremists. Now, what, what sense does that make? Oh, I'll tell you what sense that makes. It means that, look, if you, if you created yourself a police state, then you deem everybody that lives in the police state a criminal of some sort, well, now you've just given yourself, well, you see, now I have the right to run around and uh, treat everybody like a criminal because, well, I've determined that you all are criminals. And you need to be stopped. You're dangerous. You're extreme. You're scary. And you're going to wreck our little plan we got. And that can't be. See, that's the way they look at it. They're idiots because, see, their plan's never going to work. It never has worked. It's never going to work. The Tower of Babel, that's what they're trying to do, folks. I know that sounds crazy. I'm on the list, see? But that is what they're trying to do. What do you think the Tower of Babel really was? It was a new world order. It was globalism is what it was. That's what it was. Oh, we all we want all we're all going to get together. We're all going to speak the same language. We're going to build a tower to heaven. Uh, there's nothing we can't do. Blah 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 blah. It sounds like a, a a pep rally that you could go to anywhere in this country. Well, that's not the natural order of things. This is not what God wants. You know, and the thing is, why would you want this? I mean, why would you want this? Do you think globalism is good for your self-interest? Good for your family's self-interest? I mean, honestly, does anybody out there, does any normal person, and I mean normal, I don't mean normal as in sane or anything. I mean normal as in, you know... You go to work every day, you're making a living, you know, if you lose your job, you're going to be in trouble in a in a week, in a month, in a, a couple of months. You know, you don't just get to retire because you're independently wealthy. That's what I mean by normal. 
Can you imagine globalism helping, being good for anybody like that? I don't. I don't. Because so far, every little fraction of their big plan that they actually implement, like NAFTA and, you know, uh, GATT creating the World Trade Organization, and this TTP, this TPP thing is, is, a, is a catastrophe, folks. That will be the nail. That will be not the nail in the coffin. That will be the stake through the heart of American manufacturing, American industry, American small business. It'll be over if we don't get rid of that. And that's the one good thing, a thing about Donald Trump. Okay, I'm not really sure. Uh, I, You know, there's a lot of things I don't agree with about Donald Trump. I mean, really, honestly, and he's kind of scary in a way. You know, I'm, and I mean, I mean, Hitler's scary, man. Look, I want somebody different than Obama and the Democrats, too. I want a lot of things done that he said he wants to do. But people who might have good intentions... You know, you jump in the sewer, man, you're going to come out smelling like crap. That's just the way it goes. And Washington, D.C. politics is the sewer, folks. The big sewer of the universe. Yeah, United States politics. You jump in there, you're going to smell like crap. That's just the way it is. But, you know, I also understand that if you want to drown sewer rats, you got to jump in the sewer. Because that's where they're at. And if you want to drown them, you got to jump in there with them and drown them. I get that. But nevertheless, it's a dangerous situation for Americans. But. One thing I'm pretty sure Donald Trump would probably do is kill dead TPP. I'm pretty sure he'd come in and say, you know what, this is a bad deal. Y'all sold us out. We're out of this deal. That's right. We're canceling it. Now, I'd love to see him cancel NAFTA and get out of the World Trade Organization also. And start dealing with these countries on a one-by-one -one basis. Look, you want to deal with us, let's make a deal. But there's going to be a deal. And it's going to be a two-way deal. Not just good for you, bad for us. Like every deal the United States government ever... And when I say us, I mean the American people. Oh, because NAFTA and the World Trade Organization have been great for multinational corporations, man, they made money hand over fist till they destroyed the economy. But hey, you know, up until then, everything was great. But not so much anymore. And, uh, well, I got to take a break. We'll be back in just a bit. Vietnam 
left with a cardboard sign Sitting there by the left turn line Flag on the wheelchair flapping in the breeze One leg missing and both hands free No one's paying much mind to him The VA budget's just stretched the thin And there's more coming back from the Mideast War We can't make it here anymore big old building was a textile mill. It fed our kids and it paid our bills, but they turned us out and they closed the doors. We can't make it here anymore. See those pallets piled up on the loading dock? They're just gonna sit there till they rot, cause there's nothing to ship, nothing to pack, just busted concrete and rusted tracks. Empty storefronts around the squares, a needle in the gutter and glass everywhere. You don't come down here unless you're looking to score. We can't make it here anymore. The bar is still open, but man, it's slow. The tip jar is light and the register's low. The bartender don't have much to say. The regular crowd's getting thinner each day. Some are maxed out all their credit cards Some are working two jobs and living in cars Minimum wage, don't pay for a roof Don't pay for a drink if you gotta have proof Just try it yourself, Mr. CEO See how far 5.15 an hour will go Take a part-time job at one of your stores I bet you can't make it here anymore Dream, just like the pictures in the magazine she found on the floor of the laundromat. A woman with kids can forget all that. If she comes up pregnant, what'll she do? Forget the career, forget about school. Can she live on faith, live on hope? High on Jesus or hooked on dope? When it's way too late to just say no, you can't make it here anymore. Stocking shirts in the Walmart store, just like the ones we made before, except this one came from Singapore. Guess we can't make it here anymore. Should I hate a people for the shade of their skin, or the shape of their eyes, or the shape I'm in? Should I hate them for having our jobs today? No, I hate the men sent the jobs away. I can see them all now, they haunt my dreams, all lily white and squeaky clean. They never known want, they never know need, the sh don't stink and their kids won't bleed. Their kids won't bleed in their damn little war and we can't make it here anymore. for power and to us the spoils the billionaires get to pay less tax the working poor get to fall through the cracks so let them eat jelly beans let them eat cake let them eat shit whatever it takes they can join the air force or join the corps if they can't make it here anymore
what we got If the president wants to admit it or not You can read it in the paper Read it on the wall Hear it on the wind If you're listening at all Get out of that limo Look us in the eye Call us on the cell phone Tell us all why In Dayton, Ohio Or Portland, Maine Or a cotton gin Out on the Great High Plains It's done closed down Along with the school And the hospital And the swimming pool And dust devils dance In the noonday heat And there's rats in the alley And trash in the street Gang graffiti On a boxcar door We can't make it here Anymore body needs clean water to function properly. Pure is the cleanest water, also known as distilled water. Some frauds pushing fake science and ignorant people repeating their disinformation and half-truths will tell you distilled water leaches minerals from the body. What they fail to tell you is distilled water only attracts and flushes inorganic minerals from your body. These are minerals your body cannot process and can interfere with your proper body functions. Distilled water does flush these inorganic materials from your body and is an effective and natural way to cleanse your body. AVR sells a distiller that distills one gallon every three and a half hours. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com, click on the Superstore, go to the distiller, check the pricing and how to order, and watch the video explaining in detail why distilled water is pure water. Studies have shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. have denied internet access for their people during civil strife. The FCC seized in-use commercial shortwave frequencies right after the September 11th attacks. No one communication system can be depended on to be there when you need information. You need choices. You need a KU band free-to-air satellite system from AVR. The AVR system includes a receiver, an LNB, and a 75-centimeter dish. All you need to get on your own is the coaxial cable. The system is delivered to your door for $149. $99. That's right, delivered for $149.99. That's the shipping and the system, $149.99. Call 541 541- 
541-225-4659. That's 541-225-4659. Or visit AmericanVoiceRadio.com and click Satellite System. Welcome back, folks. This is the Frank Report. I'm your host, Francis Stephan. You're listening right here on American Voice Radio Network. It is Friday, December 25th, 2015. It is Christmas Day, and it's about 1242 out here, out on the Pacific Time Coast. All right. 800-932-1980 is the call-in number, theamericanvoice.com or americanvoiceradio.com is the website. Once you get to the website, you'll see the chat link. You can go into the chat room. There's a couple of people in there, uh, and you can chat with them, oh, participate in the show, whatever. You can also contact me directly. and. Uh, Using Yahoo Instant Messenger. My screen name is AVRN Talk. Okay, let's get to some things and stuff. Uh, it is actually a, a slow news day, if you want to call it news. You know, some of the headlines is Pope Urges Mercy. 
Trump's at 39.3%, Cruz is at 12.8%, Carson 9.6%, Rubio 0.3%. Oh, 8.5%, sorry. I'd like to see 0.3 for Rubio. I really don't like Rubio. Rubio's a fake to me, a phony. Okay? A shill. But that's uh, just me. And uh, FedEx flubs, apparently. I didn't, I'm not reading the story. But presents go undelivered. You know. Oh, man, okay. Well, anyway, there you have some of the headlines. Oh, now here's something. I got to read this one. This headline's just too good. Monkey steals bus. You know, I thought Obama was spending time with his family. Now now we come to find out he's out stealing But Oh, wait a minute. It wasn't Obama. Yeah, monkey steals bus and crashes into two parked vehicles while the driver takes a nap. Well, there you go. This happened in northern India, where a monkey stole and crashed a bus. The monkey managed to start the engine of the bus while the driver was taking a nap and even got it moving. The bus hit two other vehicles parked in the garage in barely uh, Padrisha State before the driver was able to regain control from the monkey. All right, well, you know, there you have it. That's what's going on in some places. So, uh, oh, here's a little something. It's not really news, but, you know, it's worth understanding who your government is, what they're like. People in this country have a distorted view of their government. And no, it's not all their fault, but they really ought to be a lot smarter than they are. But, you know, you sit and you absorb all the TV and all the school and all the everything else. And, you know, you come up really distorted. And you think, oh, that couldn't happen here. Oh, they wouldn't do that. Oh, blah, 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 blah. But they are doing it, and it is happening here. This is the same people that want to push off ideas like, well, you know, we got to burn the village to save the village. Oh, that's nice. Unless you happen to live in the village, then you're kind of, well, screwed. How about this? The United States made Cold War plans to wipe out much of the planet's population. Uh Uh-oh. Cold War plans? You mean back when everybody was honest and good and all that? You mean, really? What a surprise. Why do you think 20 years ago I was going to rallies to get the U.S. out of the U.N.? It's still a good idea. The U.N. has never been a good organization ever. Given the U.S.'s long history of wiping out huge numbers of people in the service of physical and hegemonic expansion, It may be unsurprising that the nation planned a wholesale slaughter of much of the planet's population during the Cold War. This is newly declassified documents are revealing this. See, this is stuff that they kept secret. Oh, yes, we have a plan to kill all of you, but it's a secret. 
Well, Jason Ditt summarizes that the U.S. goal was, first, prevent Soviet retaliation as much as possible, then eliminate the ability of the Soviets to fight, and finally expand to places whose loan value was that a lot of people lived there. All told, there were some 1,200 cities to be targeted with nuclear strikes specifically to try to kill as many people as possible. Cities like Moscow and Leningrad, which also had military government targets, were to be hit dozens of times. Analysts at George Washington University write, you know, I mean, okay, folks, look, you might say, well, yeah, but, you know, it was the Cold War and they were just making plans and this and that. All right. Really, let's think about this. When is it ever a good and acceptable idea to commit genocide? Look, I, I hate to say this, but and I hate to say this not so much because there's anything wrong with what I'm saying. It's because I was one of these brainwashed little American drones, rah-rah, sis-boom-bah, waving the flag, goes dirty, rotten, evil empire, commie pigs over there in Soviet Union. I was. I, I, you know, I, I didn't know any better. So that's why it's, you know, but look, anybody who's sitting around planning on having a nuclear war is a maniac. You're a psychopath. I mean, you, you, there's something wrong with you. And I don't care if you're in the federal government of the United States or you're sitting over in the Kremlin Politburo or wherever you sit over there, the KGB or whoever else you are, you Chinese over there. If you're sitting there planning about how, well, hey, here's how we could do a nuclear war, you're nuts. You need to be eradicated. There's no help for you. You're just, you're a psycho. Because I don't know, folks, anybody out there that doesn't recognize nuclear war is really a bad idea is an idiot. Uh, the SAC study does not include any explanation for population targeting. Now we're just going to do it to raise the body count. Because you see, this is the bean counters at the Pentagon. They want lots of body count. Same thing in Vietnam. They didn't give a damn about taking, you know, objectives, gaining, you know, traction in the battlefield, advancing your physical control of the country. They didn't care about any of that. Just the body count. How many gooks did you kill today is all we really care about. We don't care. We, you know, hey, we don't care if you have to go back to the same village 50 times and kill everybody every single time. You never take the village. You never occupy the country. You never make any headway. Nothing ever changes. You just keep killing people. And we keep adding them up going, well, look at the success we're having. Look at all these dead bodies. Boy, this is working out great. We're really doing good. We're not winning the war, but hey, we're stacking up dead bodies, and that's what counts. And that 
you know, sounds insane. And you might think, oh, they weren't really like that. But you know what? Oh, they really were like that. And they really are like that. But it was likely a legacy of earlier Air Force and Army Air Force thinking about the impact of bombing raids on civilian morale. For example, in a 1940 Air Corps Tactical School lecture, Major Muir Fairchild argued that an attack on a country's economic structure must be must be to so reduce the morale of the enemy civilian population through fear or death or injury for themselves or their loved ones that they would prefer our terms of peace to continuing the struggle and that they would force their government to capitulate. Well, that's one way to look at it. I suppose that could happen. But I can tell you one thing right now, General... You come and kill my family, I'm not going to feel much like capitulating. What I'm going to feel like doing is hunting you down like a dog and killing you and your children. That's what I'm going to feel like. And I'm going to feel like that until you, you stop me. And gee, yeah, hey, let's create a whole nation of people like that. Yeah, there's a good plan. There's some army intelligence at work, right? One of the authors of the Cold War nuclear bombing plans was Curtis LeMay, the war criminal notorious for massive bombings of Japanese population centers. Well, you know, look, World War II was really, well, you can't say the first because the Civil War here in the United States, and it really gets blown over. It really does. It gets blown over a lot of ways because, you know, World War II is more modern history. It was probably the biggest operational war that's ever been on this planet. And, you know, so it kind of overshadows the brutality of the Civil War. And I only call it the Civil War because that's what everybody recognizes, really the war of the federal aggression. Because I'm not even going to call it northern aggression. Because you know what? The northern states all lost the Civil War, too. See, they just surrendered and capitulated and worked with the enemy. But they were defeated all along. I mean, you know, you, if you surrender, you're defeated. You don't have to be defeated on the battlefield to be defeated. You can surrender. And that's what the northern states did. They surrendered to the federal government, and they lost their state rights. They lost their sovereignty. They lost the war. The southern states decided to fight, and they lost the war, too. But the brutality of the Civil War was, at the time, un, un, uh, unreveled, man. It was just, you know, nothing like that. Because... They did burn cities. Atlanta was burned to the ground. Not just government buildings. Sherman's march to the sea burned everything in his path. They murdered civilians. You know, I mean, so the brutality of the American 
you know, civil war is almost unprecedented in modern history. Now, I'm sure some of the ancient battles were just as, uh, you know, or even more brutal. But anyway, the plans are also reminiscent of a recently declassified U.S. instructional film from the same era, which states, where can the Navy attack? As long as the Navy commands the seas, it can deliver a biological or chemical attack anywhere on that three-quarters of the Earth's surface that's covered by water, as well as deliver biochem agents hundreds of miles inland from any coastline to attack a large portion of an enemy's population. Okay, folks, anybody who was involved with this should go to prison right now. Because a biological and chemical attack is considered a crime against humanity. It is a war crime. It is genocide. And these boys here in the Navy were planning to do that. Now, folks, you will go to jail. I guarantee you, if you and your friends get together and start writing down and planning in detail how you're going to rob the local bank, and the FBI busts in and says, hey, what's this you got here on your computer? What's this you've been writing down in your notebook? Oh, I see you're conspiring to commit a crime. Oh, well, guess what? You're all going to jail for, for planning to rob a bank. These people were planning to use biological and chemical agents on mass populations. Ah, really? And they walk free. They go home to their wife and kids. What kind of people plan crap like this? The film then shows a cartoon with U.S. biochemical weapons agents spreading over huge swaths of China and Russia. You know, they would cry like little girls. If they ever found out that, oh, Russia was planning to use biological... I mean, look at the thing that they're doing now. Oh, oh, you know, Assad. Listen, here, folks. Keep in mind, this is the government, your government that planned this. And now your government comes by and says, hey, oh, that dirty, rotten dictator in Syria... He went and gassed the Kurds with sarin gas. Oh, well, gee, now we find out that the sarin gas actually came from Turkey. But you know who Turkey is, don't you? Yeah, that's right. Allies of the United States, a member of NATO, the country that allowed us to put our nuclear missiles there that started the whole Cuban Missile Crisis. Now, what's more likely? That Assad gassed his own people for kicks? Or that the United States stuck with their plans and actually gassed people so they could create a situation where they thought that they could, uh, you know, get world opinion against somebody so they could go attack them and kick them out. 
What do you think's more likely? Yeah, let's use let's use our heads here, folks. Anyway, have a good day, and uh, I'll see you Monday. We got good stuff coming up. If you got nothing else to do, that's the nice thing about radio. You can do other things and listen. Anyhow, thanks for listening. A 47 Ford bullet holes and the door broke down motor in the front yard. <laughs> I gotta have a mind to paint a plywood sign and nail it up on a knotted pine tree. Saying I was here first, this is my piece of dirt and your rambling don't rattle me. I mean, it's hard to tell whether people even die at any of these events anymore, folks. 
I think most of them are just completely staged and they don't even really need to have real terror attacks. All they got to do is have a drill, shoot a few bullets around, throw a few dummies around the floor and get the news media in there and the media will spin it any way they want and, of course, the people will just buy into it. But even if the people don't buy into it, it doesn't matter. The media will still spin it and the government will still introduce whatever legislation it feels like introducing. That's the thing, folks. We don't even need real terror attacks. All we need is a perceived terror threat, and the government will just do what it likes. They don't even have to kill people. They can just wag the dog to the extreme, and the people will buy into it because the media said it happened, and they heard all the shooting. But, folks, there's drills at every single one of these events. Every single one of these shooting attacks, there is a drill at every single one. I mean, it's beyond a joke. It really is. I mean, you can't get a major terrorist attack these days without there being a drill coinciding with it, it seems. And does that say anything to anybody? Is anybody out there starting to see a pattern with these events? Because it should be obvious to everybody, folks, that all of these things are being set up to bring about a certain agenda, and that agenda is a global lockdown. And that's where we're heading, and that's why I felt I should come on and have a bit of a chat about it. We are really facing some difficult times ahead, folks, if people do not stand up and start calling this out. Now, for a long time, when I've been looking at this system, and I've been talking about it to you, and I've been searching for remedies of a way to get out of this mess that we find ourselves in, I've been searching down every path I could find, folks, for the last eight years since I've been doing this show, anything I could think of to empower people. You know, I got to the point where I began to realize that even though the system's fiction, a way to wake up the sleeping sheeple is to use elements of the system against itself. And that definitely would have worked, things like calling out Gaza Strip and calling out the war crime of Gaza for what it is, and it still could work now to rein in this criminal cabal if we could rally enough public support to do it. Hopefully the flailing support for this so-called war on terror may help that happen. I mean, people are getting pretty upset about things in the suburbs and all around the world. I mean, the protests we've seen in England and everywhere, there's a lot of people that are very, very upset about the way the war is escalating. And that methodology of calling out the war crime and reigning in the criminal cabal that has basically taken over all global governments would well have worked for quite a while and it still could work in countries such as England and the United States and even here in Australia. In Europe, maybe not so much anymore because of the refugee situation that has unfolded in, in Europe. So that's kind of changed the playing field there. But this legal remedy still could work for us if we could rally the population to do it, but we're fast running out of time. It's really getting to a point now with all these attacks that are being staged around the place that the lockdown is coming if the people do not rise to the occasion. And that's really what it's going to take now is the dissemination of information. People have to start spreading awareness, sharing information, it's getting very difficult to do that on platforms such as Facebook. You'll notice that people are being cordoned off now. A lot of social media is being cordoned off. Twitter, new laws coming in in all of our countries or suggestions that they should bring in laws anyway. But there's talk in all political circles, Western political circles, of the evil of anti-government extremism. 
and this is a new term that is being coined, is anti-government extremism. Anybody who questions the actions of government must be an extremist. So how is this anything to do with democracy or freedom or liberty or anything? I mean, this is an open declaration of fascism, really, folks. This is an open declaration of dictatorship. It's basically the government saying, if you criticize anything we do, you're a terrorist, and the police have permission to shoot terrorists. And that's kind of the way they're playing it, and this is happening in all Western countries, and this is really taking things to another level. So it's time people really did start paying attention to what is going on around them. And it's just ramping up more and more, really, as the days go on. So what's needed now is some coordinated action, folks. That's what's needed, coordinated action. But it's got to be sensible action. You know, We can't be out there marching and protesting and all this sort of stuff. We just saw in Paris what happens when people march and protest now. There was a, a group of very peaceful and very passive people. I think they may have been protesting the climate summit or something. It was on November 29th in Paris. And the police were unbelievable. The police were so violent. And just, just walking up to innocent people and just whacking them across the head with batons for no reason, whacking old men across the knees with batons for no reason, just there to instigate violence, escalate the conflict, turn it into a riot, and just brutalize the people. So there's no point protesting and marching, folks. Marches show solidarity but they don't actually achieve anything we need to have some sort of coordinated action to stop the system in its tracks and really the best coordinated action we can have now that our legal system is failing us so badly is simple non-compliance we need a show of solidarity in the community the community needs to stand together in solidarity and simply stop complying with the system stop paying taxes it would be great if everybody stayed home for a day. Imagine if the whole world just didn't comply for one day, if everybody refused to spend one cent or go to work or lift a finger, do anything for the system for one day. If we did that, it would bring the entire global system to its knees, folks. We could do it in a single day by one day of non-compliance. I've been saying this since 2008 since I put out a film called Fight the New World Order with Global Non-Compliance. We could do it if we simply stopped participating in the system, folks. That would be the key. You imagine the shockwave it would send around the world if not one cent was spent in the Western world in one day, if everybody refused to go and fill up their car or go to work or go and buy bread or anything like that. Just do your shopping the day before and stay home for a day. Everybody, the whole world, take a day off. It would bring the system to its knees, folks. And that's what we need. We need some sort of coordinated response to this system. And we've got to start spreading information, but we've got to really begin to take action to rein what is unfolding back under control. Otherwise, we're going to be heading into a really, really dark area. And it's been a trap, folks. The whole thing has been a trap. You know, when I look at this and I look back at the last 10 years, 15 years, it's been such a play. It's been such a trap for all the people. And even the truth movement, so-called truth movement, has been a trap for people. It really has. I've sat back and watched it, and I've just seen how orchestrated and played people have been through the whole thing. We've had some really great chances for unity. 
But of course, there's always agents that come along to disrupt any such movements. And everybody's been played off against each other. Everybody's been provided with an endless succession of rabbit holes to run down. Everybody's found little pieces of the puzzle and have very often then been locked into a little bubble of what I've often termed sovereign narcissism. And nobody has really looked at the bigger picture. You know, maybe a few have, but a lot of others haven't. A lot of others have gone down their own little rabbit hole and all they've really succeeded in doing is creating division amongst the movement. But really there's been a higher play going on as well. I mean, we had a real chance to create some unity in the truth movement, the alternate media, the independent media, the independent version of what's going on, the real version of what's going on, whatever you want to call it. We have had every opportunity to create unity in this movement. As I've often been saying, as I've said for eight years now, all we need to do is put down our stuff with each other and respect each other, and we could stand as one united voice, and we could call this system out for what it is before it has a chance to consolidate its power. But that power is now being consolidated, and we have very little time left to do such a thing. And in many ways, the independent media and the so-called truth movement has been played. Inasmuch as we've been given everything that we need to see how corrupt the world is and in doing so we've also all put ourselves out there so that the government now knows where everybody who knows what's going on is the government now has tabs on everybody you know, people ask why they make things so obvious why did they make 9-11 so obvious and why are the false flags that have continued since 9-11 been so obvious why do they make things so easy to see through and why doesn't the media ever see this and why doesn't the media ever report the truth why don't the reporters ask the hard questions these are the things that people have been asking and i think there's a reason that they make things so obviously staged and i think that that reason is to just see who gets it see who wakes up to see who they can identify as a potential dissident someone who is simply not going to go along with what the government wants to do. There's someone on who the fluoride and food additives and the vaccines may not be working, if you will. And the tighter the control grid has been locked down, the more powers the police have been given and the more police presence we've seen, the more obvious the false flags have become. So it's becoming easier for even normal everyday people who don't have a conspiratorial outlook to the world to be able to see through these things. So again, they're seeing who are the dissidents, who is prepared to stand up against government. Let's make it as obvious as we can so everybody starts calling it out and then we can identify these pockets of society which do not go along with the government line. And look, when you look at some of these so-called terror attacks there are obviously crisis actors involved in a lot of them you get these families on television that are smiling while they're talking about their loved one who was brutally murdered the day before you know none of this is normal behavior and it begs the question are these normal people you know where do these people come from all of these crisis actors and when you look at these conspiracies, a lot of people will say, you know, if all of this is really going on and all of these things are being staged and 9-11 was staged and the war on terror is a hoax and all of this stuff, there would quite literally need to be 
thousands upon thousands of people involved in the conspiracy. And that's where it falls down for a lot of people. And the truth of the matter, folks, is that there are thousands and thousands of people involved, not directly involved. There are certain groups who are directly involved in carrying out these events, but there are certain sections of society, in fact, quite large sections of society, that will never speak the truth about these events and that actually enjoy these events. They like to see things like 9-11 happen. They like to see the wars happen. They like to see the police state get locked down around the world because they are involved indirectly because of the things that they do in their private lives. You know, we look at the world and we often wonder why people don't speak out, why people just let things go on the way they are. And that is the reason, folks. That is the reason because in our society, I mean, our society is a complex thing, but when you look at it, if you can imagine it, we actually have two societies running parallel to each other that both live amongst each other. We have the society on the surface of normal people who do normal things. They go to work, they go out dancing, they do the stuff that normal people do. But there is another group of people within this society which have a very dark agenda who are spread out amongst the whole society. They're living in suburbs, sometimes whole suburbs, sometimes whole towns, whole schools, a great many people that are involved in what is essentially a shadow society that gets up to very nefarious practices in the background. Many of these people are not directly involved with things such as the 9-11 attack. As I said, many of these people are not involved in government, but many of them get up to very bad things. And what I'm talking about is what is essentially a global network of well, I don't do religion, but I really can't think of any other word other than satanic. But it is a global network of people, everyday people in normal societies who are involved in what can only be described as satanic ritual abuse of children. And this is going on in all Western countries on quite literally an industrial scale. And this is a topic that people just don't seem to want to talk about. They don't seem to want to face, but it needs to be faced because we are talking about quite literally thousands upon thousands of children being subject to the most horrific types of abuse and, and tortures and stuff straight out of horror movies. And it's going on behind the scenes in all Western countries today. We saw instances like Hampstead Heath in England where children are indoctrinated into this type of lifestyle through school and whole families are indoctrinated into this folks from a very very early age children uh, in babies and, and as young as two and three are participating in these rituals and they're getting indoctrinated into this lifestyle they've also worked very hard to indoctrinate acceptance of this lifestyle into the minds of everyday people this has been done mainly through the pop industry and the music industry if you get any music clip folks get any music clip these days and turn the sound down turn on MTV and turn the sound down and just watch the clip and basically what you're watching is soft porn I mean the the Emmy Awards or the music awards that were on TV the other night was virtually a, a soft porn show on stage that's really what it was and they do this to indoctrinate this type of sexual image into the minds of the children because this is the type of stuff that they get up to. 
But what we have here, folks, is essentially a global network of pedophiles that are trafficking children all around the world. Many come from surrogate mothers in Asian countries, the Philippines, Thailand, stuff like this, that are funneled out to foster homes that are all set up for this very purpose. And this is going on all around the world. And you're not going to get any of these people ever stand up and call out things like 9-11. You're not going to get any of these people ever standing up and calling out things like government corruption because the same people are all involved. The priests and the government, they come to these meetings and do these things as well. And you'll find that most of the people on television are all involved in these circles. You don't see celebrities and all of these people sort of hanging out in normal everyday crowds, you notice. You don't ever see them really down the shop. I mean, you may run into them now and then, but you never see them out at a local restaurant. You never see them doing things that normal people do. What do these people do in their spare time? They all go and hang out together in these special locations where they get up to these nefarious activities. And this is basically a shadow society that exists behind normal society. There is evidence of major exports of children and imports of children going on in most Western countries. As I said, these are funneled out to foster homes and then a lot of these children end up being used in rituals. And when you really realize the depth and scope of this and the the pure evil and pure psychopathy in the minds of these people, and not only that, but the fact that people who would otherwise or would have otherwise been normal people have been trained into acceptance of this type of lifestyle since birth, then you really begin to see what we are up against. Of course, all of these people like to remain hidden, and so we have always had every opportunity to be able to call this system out and, and use the legal system against itself, because that will wake up a lot of people, that will wake up a lot of sleeping masses, but the thought of having a global revolution, I just can't see it happening because of the amount of people that are involved in what are essentially very, very bad activities who all want the status quo to remain the same. Then, of course, you interject into that little mixed pot a group of other people who are very deprived and very downtrodden, who have had a completely different life, who will now work to quell any type of unity that may have been forming. And this, of course, has been done by introducing this massive amount of so-called refugees into Europe, which has really been about destabilizing Europe and undermining the culture of Europe and also diluting any response to the system. Because now everybody's fighting amongst themselves. Everybody's worried about this shadowy terrorist threat that could be anybody lurking around any corner. And really, when you look at it, folks, and you look at how these events are set up, and you look at these crisis actors, and you look at what we're told on television, how people can ring up and ask the most poignant questions to the news reporters. The news reporters just brush them off and nothing ever comes of it. And they're laughing at us. They're just laughing at the whole thing. This is why the crisis actors and the people who stage these events are just laughing on television because they know they are playing the world like a fiddle. They've sold an entirely false reality to the people of the world, the sleeping masses. They've just treated them like their flock, their flock of sheep, and they've just fed them a completely fictional reality and everybody has bought into it. And meanwhile, these people sit behind the scenes, making the whole script up as they go along, 
harvesting all the children that they harvest along the way and setting the world up for a major harvest of humanity via locking the system down the way they are. And as has been just demonstrated in Paris, the police are getting more and more brutal now. They're getting openly brutal about it. They're actually going to these events openly looking to cause trouble. We had an event here in Byron Bay a few weeks ago. There was some people just dancing in the park, in Byron Bay Park, as they do in Byron Bay Park. A group of hippies standing around just having a good time, singing songs and dancing. A group of police came up and surrounded them and told them they had to move on. One of the girls just looked at the police and said, meow. And he looked at her and said, move on. And she said, meow, and started walking away. And because she said that a second time, he grabbed her quite brutally and tried to manhandle her and tried to arrest her for giving lip to a police officer. So they're just looking for a reason to harass people and to bring people into the legal system, have them charged with something, just to make people's lives difficult and let them know that things are different now, that they are now living under an authoritarian regime. And they're going to go for the gentle people first. They'll be pulling people up on the side of the road, and they won't be the friendly police officers anymore. They'll be harassing you to the point that you actually become a little bit indignant about it, and then as soon as you do, they will arrest you for talking back to a police officer. This is the sort of laws that they're bringing in in Australia here, and I'm sure they will soon be bringing them in everywhere else if they haven't done so already. See, once they've identified all the dissidents, once they've labelled anybody who speaks out against government as an extremist, then they can start harassing people on the side of the road, and they'll start with the gentle people first, and of course anybody who speaks back must not be respectful of government, and so therefore may possibly be an extremist, which instantly makes you a suspect and gives them a reason to not only harass you, but also to arrest you, take you back for questioning, and go through every single aspect of your life. And just make sure you've never missed out on dotting any I's or crossing any T's anywhere. And of course when they do this, they can go back through all of your records for seven years through the new metadata laws. They can check up on every single phone conversation you've ever had, every text you've ever sent, every email you've ever sent or received, and every transaction you have ever performed, everywhere you've traveled. They can look up on every aspect of everybody's lives, even everything you've bought at the supermarket if they want to, if you've been shopping with a credit card. They can now do this to everybody because of the tracking laws and the way everything's gone digital. All they need is an excuse to be able to go through your life. And they will do this by simply harassing people on the side of the road for no reason and bringing them back to the station for questioning simply because they acted a little out of line. And this is the future that is unfolding right before us now, folks. This is a future that myself and many others have been calling out and warning people about for many, many years now. And here it is now right on our doorstep. But the thing is, we still can heal this situation. There is a chance we can get through this. Of course, it's a slim chance, but there is a chance that we can still get through it. You know, the world has not been lost yet but it's well on the way to being locked down. The problem is the sleeping masses, attempting to wake up the sleeping masses. And there's been so many division plays, and there's been so many mechanisms that have been put in place to discredit independent media. There's been so many plays that we've been subject to. In the last 12 months to 18 months, it's just been phenomenal. The amount of division that's been interjected into the independent media but I still do believe that there is a chance that we can still 
bring some light to this situation. It isn't over until the fat lady sings, folks, and things really are becoming obvious to people. I mean, really, you'd have to be a complete fool to think that what we're seeing in the world today is normal. You know, we've got World War Three on our doorstep, which is not going to be what people think it is. It's not going to be this major nuclear meltdown that everybody is fearful of. I don't believe that there will ever be nuclear war, but we are certainly seeing an escalation in global conflict. But I do believe that there is a way out. I really do believe that we can still heal this situation if people open up their hearts and get involved. But you've got to open your hearts, folks. You really do. You've got to open your hearts to the people around you and realize that we are all fighting the same battle and that we are all in this together. If we can do that, we've still got a chance, folks. We've got to identify what the problem is. We've got to realize that there is this shadow society that exists outside of our own society. And we've got to formulate a response to deal with this situation. And, of course, the first thing it's going to take is sharing information with people and getting the word out that now is the time for people to stand up and be counted. I mean, sure, folks, there is this shadow society that exists within our own society, but there is still a lot more of us, and there is still a lot more good, decent, and honest people in the world than there are of them. It's just that the unfortunate part of the moment is that, for the most part, they make all the laws and they have all the weapons. But I think we've reached break time here, folks. I have to leave it there for now, and we're going to have a break. Thank you for joining me on the air today. It's always a pleasure to have your company, and I'll speak to you again. Might be moving to Montana soon Just to raise me up a crop of dental floss Raising it up Waxing it down In a little white box that I can sell uptown By myself I wouldn't have no boss But I'd be raising my lonely Studies have shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. Political, religious, and medical views presented on various shows heard on American Voice Radio Network are not necessarily the views held by the management of American Voice Radio and are not presented as an endorsement by this network. All statements heard on American Voice Radio are the sole responsibility and opinion of those who speak the particular statement.
financial obligations or relationship problems have you feeling stressed out? When life is too much to handle, use Apothecary Herbs Emotional Stress Formula. Feel calm and more in control with herbs especially combined to provide the organic nutrition your system needs to help you cope. Complete instructions for maximum benefit and a money-back guarantee. You've waited long enough. Call Apothecary Herbs now. Toll free, 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International callers dial 704-875-8010 or order online at the 3 wsthepowerherbscom American Voice Radio Network is heard on Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices. Look, when you begin to identify this shadow network of what is essentially child abusers that exist within our society and and realize how all-pervasive this is, you begin to see where all these crisis actors come from. You begin to see why the entertainment industry is the way it is, why the pop industry is the way it is, why the news reporters say and do the things they do. When you see the enormous bloodlust that these people have, I mean, really what they get up to is, is pure evil, folks. And when you begin to understand this, you see why people like David Cameron would be calling for bombing Syria in order to keep the UK safe, which is completely and utterly ridiculous. Bombing children in Syria is not going to keep children in the United Kingdom safe, but they don't do it to keep anybody safe. They do it because of the enormous bloodlust that these people have. The goal really is to watch the world burn and to lock what humanity is left into a slavery system to be used as playthings for those who believe they have the right to do these things to the rest of the world. And all the while, these people who have manoeuvred themselves into positions of power in all of our countries have been playing the world like a fiddle. Now, when television was introduced to societies, we saw the downfall of civilization begin, the downfall of freedom begin, really with the invention of the printing press and was further consolidated with the invention of television. Television has been the most all-pervasive mind-control tool ever invented, and it has done an absolutely amazing job of keeping people locked into a completely and utterly false reality. You know, it's amazing how people can sit at home and watch this little tube that tells them what's going on in the world, and because the little tube says they have to do it, they give up their rights and they allow themselves to be locked down into a slavery system. And you go and look outside, go and walk around outside, go meet your neighbours, you're not seeing any of the trouble that the television is telling you is always there. All the violence we see, all the protest is always started by the police, but you've got to ask yourself, what are the people protesting for? There must be a reason for them to be protesting. What is it about? 
maybe you should look at some of these issues and see what the people are speaking up about. And maybe you should protest too, but in the right way, by removing support from the system, removing your tax dollars from the system. You know, it might be bad if one person does this, you may get in trouble, but if the whole society does it, if the whole society just stops and says no more, then the system has no choice. It can't force people to go to work. It can't force people to come out of their houses. If the whole world just refuses to comply anymore with what is going on, then the system crumbles. And the question has to be asked, what is it going to take for people to do this? How bad does it have to get before people are willing to step away? And we've seen what protesting does. Like I said, there's no point marching down the street and saying, we won't do this anymore. The police just surround you, and the armoured police with shields and batons and tasers and deadly weapons all over them, and they're all sociopaths. And they don't care. They'll just corral you, they'll beat you, and they'll make an example of you so others don't do it. But if all the community respects each other, and they all simply stay home and refuse to comply with this system, and they bring the machine to a grinding halt, then the system has no choice but to comply with the wishes of the people from that point. I mean, it's got to start somewhere, folks, and it's got to begin with solidarity, and a national or an international day of non-compliance is a day that everybody can participate in by basically not participating. All you have to do is nothing. That's all you have to do for the day is stay home. That sort of a thing would make a difference. It would make a stand. It would allow the controlling hand to realise that we've had enough and we're not going to take it. But we have to do something, folks, because otherwise things are going to get very, very ugly. They are already getting ugly. And we really desperately need to change the direction that we're going. And it's only going to come from unity. I really hope now that people can see the need for unity, that people can see the need for them to put down their stuff with each other, for them to put down their rabbit holes. Please, for the moment, put down your rabbit hole and pay attention to matters of state. I've been asking for this for eight years and my voice has been getting quite desperate in the last three or four because I can see what's coming. And now it's here, it's really time for the people to stand up and be counted. We've got to fix this situation, folks. And it has to start with unity. I'm actually leaving tomorrow for a meeting in Bali with Ken O'Keefe. I'm actually going to meet with Sasha Stone as well. I've never met Sasha. I was on a panel with him once. I've heard some good reports about Sasha. I've heard some bad reports about Sasha. I like to leave things until I meet people so I can make my own mind up. So I'm going to take the opportunity to do that while I'm in Bali. And it's really wonderful that actually someone has paid this trip for me and asked me to come and participate in this little venture which is basically nine days of filming with myself and Ken O'Keefe and a couple of other people, including Sasha Stone and Samantha Backman in Bali. So we'll see what comes of that. You know, I think everybody's realising that the situation is getting desperate and we need some sort of unity in this movement. We need the independent media to come together and we need the fan bases of the independent media to come together and we need to formulate a coordinated response to what is coming down. And so that's the sort of things we're going to be discussing while I'm over there for the next week. That's why I won't be able to do any shows for the next couple of weeks, because I'm going to be away for the next nine days, and I don't know what's going to come out of this little venture. But hopefully we're going to be coming away with some sort of a plan to help create a secure future. Lord knows we certainly don't have one now. The interesting thing about this system, isn't it, is that everything it tells us is backwards. It tells us it's taking away our liberties to ensure our security, but 
Of course, when you remove someone's liberties, you guarantee that they are no longer secure. And it's all backwards. Everything they say is backwards. It's like what Israel does, folks. I hate to go on about Israel, but everything Israel tells us is backwards as well. The situation we see there is, is one completely upside down where those that we believe are the terrorists are actually subject to routine terrorism every day by those who claim they are the victims. And look, for years and years I've been saying to people that if we don't pay attention to what's going on in that area, then the way of Palestine will be the way of the world. And now when we see the totalitarian system that exists in Palestine, in the West Bank and in Gaza, we see the systems that have been put in place for warehousing and surplusing human beings, and we now see these exact same totalitarian systems appearing in France, appearing all around Western countries. This is exactly the same thing, folks, and the world is now beginning to turn into what we see in Palestine. Recently, there was a a lobbyist who went on television and said that he would like to see the whole Middle East like Israel. And what we see in Israel is a completely totalitarian system, and that is what they're putting in place across the Middle East, and that is what they're putting in place in all Western countries. Because everything they tell us is backwards, folks. It's always backwards, and everything the media tells you is backwards. You know, the mainstream media and the government are not your friends. They've sold a lie to the whole world. You know, you think about it, folks, the media, these people sit there in a little room with a nice backdrop behind them, and they put this message out onto this little screen. And because everybody's got a screen in their homes, it looks like it's this big organization, this all-knowing, all-pervasive organization, but it's not. It's just a bunch of people sitting in a little room, reading off a script, telling you what reality is, when in actual fact, reality is completely and utterly the opposite of what they're saying. It's like this whole Muslim menace across the Middle East, which is not a Muslim menace. It's all been created by the West. The whole war on terror is not a war on terror. It's a war of terror being perpetrated against innocent civilians under the pretext of getting revenge upon these people for a terrorist act that the very people who are waging the war carried out themselves. I mean, all of this that we see in the world today is all riding on the back of 9-11, folks. And that may seem like old news to people, but the 9-11 attack is not old news. It will never be old news because the entire global situation we see today is riding on the back of that event. And that event was a false flag. And when you really put that into perspective, then you really begin to see what we're facing here. There's actually a great new movie that's been released about 9-11. I can't remember the name of the filmmaker offhand, but I've got it on the website. If you go down to the recommended viewing on my website, thecrowhouse.com, there's a film called Incontrovertible, and it's a wonderful portrayal of what actually happened on 9-11. It's a great film to show police officers and firefighters and government officials and people who work within mainstream political circles. If you can get this information to them, maybe those people who are not already lost will actually see the light and we might get some people helping to make a difference from within because if we call out 9-11, folks, and we call out the whole war on terror, we expose the whole criminal system for what it is. Again, you're not going to get everybody doing it because there are so many elements within society and within the media that will not ever allow the information to come out but we have the strength of numbers, and if we refuse to comply with this system anymore until this information is addressed, then I think we can make a difference. 
it's all about the dissemination of information, folks. But it's got to be the right information. It's got to be done in the right way, in a sensible way, in a non-conspiratorial way, and not with all the noise that people put around it. You know, there's so much noise surrounding real information in the independent media, and that has been one of the biggest problems that we've faced. But, of course, that's how COINTEL works, folks. You interject noise. You put conspiracy theories everywhere and theories in, within theories within theories, and you make everything unbelievable and so convoluted that the truth gets lost in a sea of noise. I said back in my first film in 2008 that the best way to hide a real conspiracy is to create conspiracy culture around it so that nobody ever knows what the real truth is. And that's what's been done. But the real truth, folks, is that we're in a slavery system. It's being locked down right now. And the bigger truth is that we have the power to change it if we just choose to do so. But it's a fearful choice. It's a fearful choice for many people. I can understand that. It's a fearful choice. You know, no one wants to get hurt. No one wants any violence. And violence can happen because the system really doesn't care how many people it hurts. And just look at the 9-11 attacks. Just look at the way they treat people in protest. Just look at what the police do to people. But still, we have to do something, folks. We can't just sit idly by and complain about this while it gets locked down around us. And I really believe that if we have a strong united voice, then we can make a difference. Now, they can't ignore it forever, but they can if all we do is protest. But if our strong united voice is simply millions upon millions of people refusing to go along with things anymore, just refusing to comply, then that will make a difference because the system only functions because we participate in it. You know, we are the ones who turn the wheels of the mechanism and we can choose not to do so anytime we want. The big thing that prevents people from doing that is that they're afraid to do so because they're scared that no one else will do it with them. They're scared that if they make a stand themselves, they'll get picked off. And this is true in many cases. If you do it on your own, you probably will. But if the whole world does it or a large part of the world does it, I mean, you wouldn't even need everybody to do it. And as I said earlier, you're not going to get everybody to do it because there's too many people who want the status quo to remain the same. But if you have a reasonably sized section of mankind simply stand up and say no and refuse to comply, then it will make a difference. And the thing is, it will shut the system down. It'll bring it to a grinding halt because the system only functions because we participate in it. So we need to stop participating in it. We need to just make a stand that way. Now, you can't have people going out and protesting and marching on the street and getting subject to the type of violence that we're seeing getting meted out to these people. It's really painful watching this happen, you know, seeing people being so brutalized on the street by police officers who are there to protect them. They're there to serve and protect the people. But police officers don't do that anymore. They're just there to enforce legislation, regardless of how corrupt it is. And because they do this, folks, I mean, you look at this, you look at the actions of these cops, and you've got to go, well, what do they do to these people? Why are the police acting this way? And you realize that there is this secret agenda behind all of this. There is a, a group of very bad people who do very bad things. But there's also certain drugs that are out there that they're feeding people as well. There's a drug that has been found that is getting fed to members of ISIS. It's being manufactured on a large scale. And I wouldn't be surprised if they feed this to police officers as well. There's actually a drug that's going across the Middle East at the moment called Captagon. 
and it's been dubbed a jihadist drug and it's been flooding the Middle East and this is what is basically fueling all of these so-called ISIS warriors. This is an amphetamine and it's kind of like cocaine or speed or something like that and the reports are is that it just basically stops you feeling anything, makes you numb and basically makes you a, a wonderful machine for killing people because you just don't care when you're on this drug, you're wide awake all the time. And I wouldn't be surprised at all if it were things such as Captagon which were bringing about the type of behaviour we're seeing in modern-day police because these individuals just don't seem to feel anything for normal people. It's really bizarre. They just don't seem to act like normal human beings at all. And that is a real worry. It's a real concern. And that's the problem that we're facing. And unfortunately, when we try to get to the politicians... This is the wall that we have to get through, is the police. But that's because we protest. It's because we're marching down the street. We're walking down the street, shaking our fists at the politicians. But really, they just send this wall of sociopaths out to deal with it. In order to get to the politicians, we've got to get to them through a mechanism that they understand, and that is to remove support from their system. Stop going along with what they say. And I'm not suggesting that people go out and break laws and things. I'm simply saying don't comply anymore. Simply stop participating in the system and spread the words with your friends. Say, look, you know, this is getting out of hand. The police are getting out of hand. This war in Syria is getting out of hand. Everything governments are doing is getting out of hand. We need to remove our support from this government because it's only by us removing our support for the government that things are going to change. I mean, like I said, folks, there were legal mechanisms that could have worked for us. Gaza Strip could have worked for us. All of the people that went down the Freeman rabbit hole, all the lose-the-name people, all of these people, I was saying to them for the last year or two years that this will work if you apply yourself to the system. The problem with these people is they jumped into a bubble of narcissism and thought, no, no, I can just step outside the system. I can lose the name and walk away and I'll be safe. But it doesn't work that way. You've actually got to use the information that you've got to expose the system for what it is to the sleeping masses around you. And it's people's failure to apply the knowledge that they've got to the system that's now led to this current situation. So now we need to formulate a new plan. We need to find something that's going to work. And really, the only thing that I can think of that will work is the very first idea I had back in 2008, and that is to remove all support for the system. Complete and absolute non-compliance. And again, you don't need to be breaking any laws to be indulging in non-compliance. All you have to do is stay home. All you have to do is nothing. Just don't participate. Don't spend any money. Don't go out. Just don't participate in this society for a day. See if you can organize a day in your country. And let's see if we can organize a global day. And if one global day doesn't work, then we'll organize a global two days and then a global three days and then a global week. And then we will just stop until the system stops around us. Because if we pull our support from this system, then it will crumble. It has no choice because we are the ones who are holding it up. That's really the truth of the matter, folks. And the sooner people realize this, the better, because that's the way out. It really is, you know. It simply can't function if we don't allow it to function. And we can refuse to allow it to function by simply removing our support from it. It's like someone once said in the 60s, what if they threw a war and nobody came? 
that's the thing, folks. We can complain about soldiers shooting people all we want, but it's the soldiers who pull the trigger. It's the soldiers who go to the war and participate, simply because they believe in authority. But that's the problem, you know. If people didn't join the army, there wouldn't be any wars. So we should just not join these organizations. Of course, they make it very difficult not to, especially in places like the United States, because it's about the only decent job you can get. And then, of course, you've got rogue states such as Israel, where it's mandatory to join the army and to go and murder Palestinians before you're given proper citizenship. So that's a wonderful state of affairs. So it's very difficult in regard to military situations. People have already given their authority away. But in civilian situations, as far as the system goes, as far as the civilian side of things go, it's all held up by us. It's all held up by our choice to get up and go to work every day. And what we should do is just choose not to one day just for the sake of the world. And in fact, we should do it for the sake of our children. You know, we all knew this day was coming, folks. There's a time in everybody's life when it comes, a time when they have to make a stand, a time when they're given a choice between two paths. And that's where we are now. We are at a crossroads. Mankind is quite literally walking on a knife edge. I've been saying this for a while. But now we're reaching the very tip of the knife and we have a choice to make. You know, is mankind going to stand for what is good? Are we going to stand for what is decent? Are we going to rediscover ourselves and claim our true power and our true divinity? Or are we simply going to allow ourselves to be led like lambs to slaughter because we're in fear of facing all of those things? Because really that's what it's about. It's fear of facing our own divinity. It's our fear of death as well. You know, a fear of death is very much instilled into us since birth, and yet death is the only part of life that is inevitable. You should not go through life in fear of death. You really shouldn't. And if your death can count for something, well, it's the only part of your life that's guaranteed to happen anyway, so why not make it count for something? And I don't want to die. Nobody wants to die. But if making a stand and leaving this world at my age of 58 years old will create a better future for my son, then I would be prepared to do that. And I can't back down to this system. I really can't, not through any fear of death. Death is inevitable, and I would rather die on my feet than live on my knees. This has always been the way I've lived my life. I will not bow to authority, especially when that authority is corrupt and can be seen to be openly corrupt and causing the type of damage that it is causing around the world today. I mean, every problem that we face on this planet can be traced to legislation written by politicians. Every war, every problem, every piece of environmental degradation, every single issue that we face as a species can be traced to legislation that was put in place by rulers. People who believe they have the authority over others. This is what has led to the situation that we now find ourselves in, and unfortunately we are very much to blame you know, it's our negligence that has created this situation. Of course, we've been trained to be that way. You can't blame people altogether because people have been fed a false version of reality. They have been removed of their life skills and they have been taught that up is down and black is white and everything is backwards. So you can't really blame people for what they do and you can't really blame people for what they've done that has led to this situation. But now that it's all in everybody's face, now that we can see what's been going on behind the scenes all along, now that even people in the mainstream are beginning to realize that the so-called conspiracy theorists have been right all along, now it comes down to a time where you actually do know 
And so you do have a choice to make a difference. And the scary part is that it becomes apparent in most people's minds that now they have this information, if they don't act, then they are very much to blame. Now, knowledge is a dangerous thing because with knowledge comes responsibility. And people who have the knowledge of what is going on in the world do have a responsibility for themselves, for their children, and for all generations that are to follow us and to every brother and sister that is now alive in the world that is suffering due to our inaction. We have a responsibility to all of these people once we have the knowledge. And if we fail to act upon this knowledge, then we become complicit in the slaughter of these people. We become complicit in the war crimes that are being carried out. We become complicit in the future that we are allowing to be created simply due to having knowledge and failing to act upon it. And that is the unfortunate situation that mankind finds themselves in today. Many people can see the darkness, they can see the storm clouds gathering, they know how to open the umbrella, but they're just too afraid to do so. But folks, what is coming is no regular storm. What is coming is a torrent, a deluge of unprecedented proportions. And if people fail to act, then their fear is going to be multiplied a thousand times over when the system actually reaches out and touches them. And it will reach out and touch every man, woman and child on this earth if people fail to act. So the time for talk is over, folks, unless you're talking about sharing information with people. But all the knowledge that you've got and all the information that has been shared with you and all the knowledge we've managed to gather all over all these years, now is the time to put it to use. And if you don't put it to use, then all of that research and all of that time gathering that information has all been for nothing because it was never going to work. It was never going to amount to anything unless you prepared to use it. And now's the time for you to do so. But look, we're getting very close to the end of the show here, folks, so I better leave it here for now before I go off on another rant. There is so much more I'd like to talk to you about. There's been so much happening in the world while I've had this time off. The last couple of months have just been like a roller coaster ride. I'm sure everybody's seen it. Thank you for bearing with me while I had this time off the show. For the last couple of months, I've had an awful lot on, and it's been a very interesting ride, actually, in the last couple of months. And for all of those people out there who may have heard that I was attacked on October 24th after speaking at the Freedom Summits the day before, I'd just like you to know that I'm all good. I suffered a couple of cracked ribs, but I am coming good. These things take time to heal, but it's okay. I've still got a little bit of trauma to my shoulder, which is, is kind of healing. It's a little slow, but it's it's coming along. But on the whole, I'm good I'm and not damaged. There was a meme that was circulating of me on Facebook which showed me in a hospital bed connected up to tubes and life support, which is, this was not a, a real picture, folks. I don't know who made it, but it was not a real picture. I was never in that bad a condition. I just had a few bruises and a couple of cracked ribs and a sore shoulder. So it wasn't anything life-threatening. So thank you very much for all of the kind emails and all the support everybody showed me through what was a pretty rough time. But I'm fine, I'm coming good, and it'll take a lot more than that to silence me, folks. I can guarantee you of that. But anyway, thank you for all of the kind words and support that everybody showed me. But look, that is it for me now, folks. I'm completely out of time, so I am going to have to go. I'm not going to be back on the air regularly for the moment. I've got too much I have to get done. But I will try to get some shows done in amongst it all. I might be able to get another one out in two or three weeks. 
But look, I am going to have to go now, and I will bring you a report about what occurred in Bali after the meeting with Ken O'Keefe and Sasha Stone that I'm leaving for tomorrow. And you will definitely hear from me again in two or three weeks. So I'll look forward to speaking to you again then. Please take very good care. Until then, my friends, the storm is coming, but we can weather it if we're sensible about it. So look after yourselves and stay safe, and I'll speak to you again soon. In Lakesh. With a sign on the front that Fender Jeff and a second hand guitar. It was a Stratocaster with a whammy bar. We could jam and Joe's garage. His mama was screaming, turn it down. We were playing the same old song in the afternoon. And sometimes we were playing all night long. It was all we knew. A lot of the other news media don't pick up the news items like he does. And bringing to light the enemies of freedom who are out to steal your rights, your children, and enslaving you. You really get the truth out. I can tune into your show and hear the unvarnished truth. Thank you. This is What's Right, What's Left with Pastor Ernie Sanders. Good evening and welcome to another edition of What's Right, What's Left. I'm Radio Pastor Ernie Sanders and I want to say a a merry, a very, very merry and blessed Christmas. And, uh, the Lord Jesus is the reason for every season. And tonight we have a special program for you this Christmas Eve. And uh, we have a, a number of Christmas stories that we're going to read. And uh, we're going to start tonight with the most important, and that's right from God's Word, the Bible, from Luke chapter 2. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a, a decree from Caesar Augustus that, while they were there, that all the world should be taxed. And, and this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, every one into his city. And Joseph went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, into the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Because he was of the house of and lineage of David. To be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, and the days were accomplished, that she should be delivered. That she brought forth her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and, and laid him in a manger, because, well, there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone around about them, and, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of, of great joy, which should be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. 
And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of, of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and, and on earth peace and goodwill toward men. And it came to pass that the angels were gone away from them into heaven. The shepherds said one to another, Let us go even into Bethlehem and, and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all of these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned to glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. And when eight days were accomplished for the circumcision of the child, his, his name was called Jesus, which was so named of the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were accomplished, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male that openeth the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to that which is said in the law of the Lord. A pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and, and the same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Ghost was upon him. And it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law then took he him up in his arms and, and blessed God and said Lord now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word for mine eyes have seen thy salvation which thou hast prepared before the face of all people a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. And Simeon blessed them and said unto Mary his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel and for a sign which shall be spoken against Yes, a sword shall pierce through my own soul, and the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. And there was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asser. She was of great age and had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity. 
And she was a widow of about fourscore and four years, which departed not from the temple, but served God with fasting and prayers night and day. And she coming in that instant gave thanks likewise unto the Lord, and spake of him to all them that looked for redemption in Jerusalem. And when they had performed all of these things according to the law of thy Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own city, Nazareth. And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit, and filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. And now what I'm going to do is <coughs> read you another story. And this story is from the hand of the great Russian author, Leo Tolstoy. Born in a wealthy family, Tolstoy sometimes felt bad that he was so rich while other people were so hungry and poor. He often worked on behalf of the less fortunate. He even took time for projects such as writing stories for children and, and for starting schools for peasant children. The title of the story tonight is Papa Panov's Special Christmas by Leo Tolstoy. It was Christmas Eve, and although it was still afternoon, lights had begun to appear in the shops and the houses of the little Russian village. For the short winter day was nearly over. Excited children <coughs> scurried indoors, and, and now only muffled sounds of chatter and laughter escaped from closed shutters. Old Papa Panov, the village shoemaker, stepped outside his shop to, to take one last look around. The sounds of happiness, the, the bright lights and the, the faint but delicious smells of Christmas cooking reminded him of past Christmas times when his wife had still been alive and, and his own children little. Now they had gone, and his usually cheerful face, with the little laughter and the wrinkles behind the round steel spectacles, looked sad now. And he went back indoors with a firm step, put up the shutters, and set a pot of coffee to heat on the charcoal stove. Then, with a sigh, he settled in his big armchair. Papa Panoff did not often read, but tonight he pulled down the big old family Bible and slowly tracing the lines with one forefinger. He read again the Christmas story. He read how Mary and Joseph, tired by their journey to Bethlehem, found no room for them in the inn. So that Mary's little baby was born in a cow shed. Oh dear, oh dear, exclaimed Papa Panoff. If only they had come here. I would have given them my bed and, and I could have covered the baby with my patchwork quilt to keep him warm. He read on about the wise men who had come to see the baby Jesus and bringing him splendid gifts. Papa Panos' face fell. I have no gift that I could give him. 
he thought sadly. Then his face brightened. He put down the Bible, got up, and stretched his long arms to the shelf high up in that little room. He took down a small, dusty box and opened it. Inside was a perfect pair of tiny leather shoes. Papa Panov smiled with satisfaction. Yes, they were as good as he had remembered. The best shoes that he had ever made. I should give him these. He decided as he gently put them away and sat down again. He was feeling tired now. And the further he read, the sleepier he became. The print began to dance before his eyes so that he closed them just for a minute. In no time at all, Papa Panoff was fast asleep. And as he slept, he, he dreamed. He dreamed that someone was in his room. And he knew at once, as one does in dreams, who the person was. It was Jesus. You have been wishing that you could see me, Papa Panoff, he said kindly. Then look for me tomorrow, and I will be Christmas Day, and I will visit you. But look carefully, for I shall not tell you who I am. When at last Papa Panoff awoke, the bells were ringing out, and a thin light was filtering through the shutters. Bless my soul, said Papa Panoff. It's Christmas Day. He stood up and, and stretched himself, for he was rather stiff. Then his face filled with happiness as he remembered his dream. This would be a very special Christmas after all, for Jesus was coming to visit him. How would he look? Would he be a little baby as at the first Christmas? Would he be a grown man, a carpenter, or the great king that he is, God's son. He must watch carefully the whole day through so that he recognized him however he came. Papa Panoff put on a special pot of coffee for this Christmas breakfast and took down the shutters and looked out the window. The street was deserted. No one was stirring yet. No one except the old road sweeper. He looked as miserable and about as dirty as ever. And well, he might. Whoever wanted to work on Christmas Day, and in the raw, cold, and bitter freezing mists of such a morning, Papa Panoff opened the shop door let in a thin stream of cold air. Come in, he shouted across the street cheerfully. Come in and have some hot coffee to keep out the cold. The sweeper looked up, scarcely able to believe his ears. He was only too glad to put down his broom and come into the warm room. 
His old clothes steamed gently in the heat of the stove, and, and he clasped both red hands around the comforting warm mug as he drank. Papa Panoff watched with him with satisfaction. But every now and then his eyes strayed to the window. It would never do to miss his special visitor. No, not never. Expecting someone? The sweeper asked at last. So Papa Panov told him about his dream. Well, I hope he comes, the sweeper said. You've given me a bit of Christmas cheer and I never expected to have. I'd say you deserve to have your dream come true. And he actually smiled. When he had gone, Papa Panage put on cabbage soup for his dinner. Then he went to the door again and scanning the street, well, he saw no one. But he was mistaken. Someone was coming. The girl walked so slowly and quietly, hugging the walls of shops and houses, that it was a while before he noticed her. She looked very tired, and she was carrying something. And as she drew nearer, he could see that it was a baby wrapped in a thin shawl. There was such sadness in her little face. And in that pinched little face of the baby that Papa Panov's heart went out to them. Won't you come in, he called, stepping outside to meet them. You both need a warm place by the fire and rest. The young mother let him shepherd her indoors and to the comfort of the armchair, she gave a big sigh of relief. I warmed some milk for the baby, Papa Panov said. I've had children of my own, and I can feed her for you. He took the milk from the stove and carefully fed the baby from a spoon, warming her tiny little feet by the, the stove at the same time. She needs shoes, the cobbler said. But the girl replied, I can't afford shoes. I've got no husband to bring home money. I'm on my way to the next village to get work. Suddenly, thought flashed through Papapanov's mind. He remembered the little shoes he had looked at last night. But he had been keeping them for Jesus. He looked again at the cold little feet and made up his mind. Try these on her, he said, handing the baby and the shoes to the mother. The beautiful little shoes were a perfect fit. The girl smiled happily, and the baby gurgled with pleasure. You have seen, and you have been so kind to us. The girl said, when she got up with her baby to go, may all your Christmas wishes come true. But Papa Panoff was, was beginning to wonder if, 
if his very special Christmas wish would come true. Perhaps he had missed his visitor. He looked anxiously up and down the street, and there were plenty of people about, but they were all faces that he recognized. There were neighbors going to call on their families. They nodded and smiled and wished him happy Christmas, and old beggars. <coughs> and Papa Panoff hurried indoors to fetch them hot soup and a generous hunk of bread. Hurrying out again to, in case he missed the important stranger. And when Papa Panoff next went to the door and strained his eyes, he could no longer make out the passers-by. Most were home and indoors by now anyway. He, he, he walked slowly back into his room and at last put up the shutters and sat down wearily in his armchair. So it had been just a dream after all. Jesus had not come. Then all at once he knew that he was no longer alone in the room. This was not a dream, for he was wide awake. At first it seemed to see before his eyes the long stream of people who had come to him in that day. He saw again the old road sweeper, the young mother, and her baby, and the beggars that he fed. As they passed, each whispered, Didn't you see me, Papa Panoff? Who are you, he called out, bewildered. Then another voice answered him. It was the voice from his dream the voice of Jesus. I was hungry and you fed me, he said. I was naked and you clothed me. I was cold and you warned me. I came to you today in every one of those you helped and welcomed. Then all was quiet and still. Only the sound of the big clock ticking. A great peace and, and happiness seemed to fill the room overflowing Papa Panoff's heart until he wanted to burst out singing and laughing and, and dancing with joy. So it did come after all, was all that he said. And that was a Christmas story by Telstoy, Papa Panoff's special Christmas. Well, often people at this time of year uh, you hear over and over, and everywhere you go, unfortunately, not like it used to be when when I was a young man going into the department stores, well, you would see life-size nativity scenes, and there would be pictures of, of, uh, and of the Lord Jesus and the child, and it was about Jesus. Jesus was the reason for the season when I was a young child growing up. Well, today that's changed, and of course, even in those days, you heard about Santa Claus. And today, well, Santa Claus is welcome a lot of places, but just like God's Word, the Bible said it would be, the Lord Jesus isn't. Well, he's welcome here, and he's welcome in the hearts of millions across the world. And uh, I want to, again, wish all of you out there listening tonight 
a, a very merry and a blessed Christmas, knowing that that Jesus is the reason for that season. Well, what about this fellow, Santa Claus? I'm going to be reading a history of, of who Santa Claus really was, uh, right from Bill Federer's American Minutes. Bill is a dear friend and a, a great historian, and he's done some research. And, uh, well, here it goes. Greek Orthodox tradition tells of St. Nicholas being born around 280 A.D., the only child of a wealthy elderly couple who lived in Patera, Asia Minor, present-day Turkey. When his parents died in a plague, Nicholas inherited their wealth. Nicholas generously gave to the poor. He did it anonymously, as he wanted the glory to go to God. One noticeable incident was when a merchant in town had gone bankrupt. The creditors not only threatened to take the merchant's assets, but also his children. The merchant had three daughters and knew if, if they were taken, it would probably mean a life of sex trafficking and prostitution. The merchant had the idea of quickly marrying his daughters off so the creditors could not take them. Unfortunately, he did not have the money for a dowry, which was needed in that area of the world for a legally recognized marriage. Nicholas heard of the merchant's dilemma, and he threw a bag of money in the window for the oldest daughter's dowry. The bag of money landed in a shoe or a stocking that was drying by the fireplace. It was the talk of the town when the first daughter got married. Nicholas then threw a bag of money in the window for the second daughter, and she was able to get married. And for the third daughter, and the merchant ran outside and caught Nicholas. Nicholas made him a promise not to tell where the money came from. This was the origin of the tradition of the secret giving on the anniversary of St. Nicholas' death, which was December 6th, 343 A.D. The three gold bells outside pawnbroker shops represent the three bags of gold St. Nicholas used to, to rescue a family in their time of financial need. St. Nicholas became a bishop of Myra, a busy city port on the coast of Asia Minor. Soon, St. Nicholas was, was arrested and imprisoned during Emperor Diocletian's brutal persecution of Christians. St. Nicholas would not deny his faith in Christ. St. Nicholas was freed when Emperor Constantine ended Rome's three-century-long persecution of Christians. And when the first major heresy, the Arian heresy, began to split the Christian church, <coughs> Constantine ordered all the bishops to go to Nicaea, 
to settle it, which they did by writing the Nicaea Creed. The tradition is that St. Nicholas attended the Council of Nicaea and was so upset at Arius for starting his heresy that he slapped him across the face. Now, I guess we know that jolly old St. Nick had quite a temper. St. Nicholas preached against sexual immorality and Diana worship at the Ephesus. The Apostle Paul also had preached according to the book of Acts, chapter 19. The temple of Diana was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, having 127 huge pillars and temple prostitutes. It was the Las Vegas of the Mediterranean world. The people responded to St. Nicholas' fiery preaching by tearing down the local temple to Diana. St. Nicholas also stood up to corrupt government politicians. One story was of a corrupt governor who was about to execute some innocent soldiers in order to cover up his misdeeds. St. Nicholas broke through the crowd, grabbed the executioner's sword, threw it down, and then exposed the governor's evil plot. Greek Orthodox tradition attributes many miraculous answers to St. Nicholas' prayers. Once the storm was so bad, fishermen and sailors were not able to get back to shore. The people asked of St. Nicholas to pray, and, and the sea became calm enough for the fishermen and sailors to return safely to port. This led to St. Nicholas being considered the patron saint of sailors. St. Nicholas' reputation grew so much that he became to Greek Orthodox Christians what St. Peter was to the Roman Catholic Christians. And in the 5th century church in Myra, was named after St. Nicholas being rebuilt by Emperor Justinian after an earthquake in 529. In 988 AD, Valdemir, the Great of Russia, converted to Eastern Orthodox Christianity and adopted Nicholas as the Patriot Saint of Russia. In the 11th century, Muslim terrorists, the Seljuk Turks, invaded Asia Minor killing Christians and destroying churches and digging up the bones of Christian saints and desecrating them. For protection, Christians shipped the remains of St. Nicholas to a church in the town of Verhey in southern Italy in the year 1087. Pope Urban II dedicated the church, naming it after St. Nicholas, the Basilica of Nan of San Nicola, thus introducing the Greek St. Nicholas to Western Europe. So many Christians were fleeing the Muslim invasion of Eastern Europe that Pope Urban II went to the Council of Claremont in 1095 and 
called upon European leaders to send help. Help was sent. Help, it was called the First Crusade. When St. Nicholas remained in Italy, Western Europeans quickly embraced the gift-giving traditions associated with St. Nicholas Day, December 6th. Martin Luther began the Reformation and ended all saints' days, including the popular St. Nicholas Day. Since Germans liked the gift-giving so much, Martin Luther moved the gift-giving to December 25th to emphasize that all gifts come from Christ, come from the Christ child. The German pronunciation of Christ child, Christ, Christ Kindle, which over the centuries got pronounced Chris Kingle. Greeks built in on the prophecy of Jesus returning at the end of the world to judge the living and the dead, riding a white horse, and the saints returning with him, riding white horses. St. Nicholas will certainly be one of those returning saints. Just like the Roman Catholic stories of St. Peter behind the gates of heaven, the Greeks have the story of St. Nicholas coming back once a year for a sort of mini prejudgment day. Over the centuries, the story evolved. In Norway, they did not have horses, so St. Nicholas is riding a reindeer. Saints came heaven in the New Jerusalem, the celestial city, which turned into the North Pole. The Lamb's Book of Life and the Book of Works turned into the Book of the Naughty and the Nice. The angels turned. And during Henry VIII's reign in England, Christmas became a, partying, a time of partying and carousing. When Puritans took over England and outlawed Christmas as too worldly, and when the Puritans settled in Massachusetts, they had five shillings fine for anyone caught celebrating Christmas. Eventually, Dutch immigrants brought St. Nicholas traditions to New Amsterdam, which became New York. The Dutch pronounced St. Nicholas's Sinterklaas, which became Santa Claus. Author Washington Irving, who wrote The Legend of Sleepy Hollow and Rip Van Winkle, wrote Diedrich Nickenbrocker's A History of New York in 1809, in which he swapped out St. Nicholas Bishop outfit for a, a Dutch outfit of a long trunk, a hose, and leather belt, boots, and a stocking hat. Clement Moore wrote in 1823, A Visit from St. Nicholas. "'Twas the night before Christmas when all through the house not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. The stockings were hung by the chimney with care, and hopes that St. Nicholas would soon be there. Clement Moore describes St. Nicholas's smaller. He was chubby and plump, a right jolly old elf, 
and I laughed when I saw him in spite of myself. Well, that ends the story of St. Nicholas. And uh, today I know that we have, uh, there's a lot of tradition, and I know that uh, a lot of folks uh, don't want to tell their children about Santa Claus, but they really should tell them about the history of St. Nicholas. He was a real man, and I don't think he came down too many children chimneys. But where do do all of these legends come from? Well, the legend that when he had thrown the little bag of gold through the window, it landed in the sock drying on the fireplace. Well, I guess that's where we get the traditions of hanging up your stockings over the fireplace. And now I wanted to read another uh, story. And this one here is a true story, as was the one about St. Nicholas, and it's called The Christmas Truce, The Christmas Truce. You are standing up to your knees in the slime of a waterlogged trench. It is the evening of 24th of December, 1914. And you are on the dreaded Western Front. Stooped over, you wade across to the firing step and take over the watch. Having exchanged pleasantries, your leery-eyed and mud-splatted colleague shuffles off towards his dugout. Despite the horrors and the hardships, your morale is high, and, and you believe that in the new year, the nation's armies march towards a glorious victory. But for now, you stamp your feet in a vain attempt to keep warm. All is quiet with when jovial voices call out from both friendly and enemy trenches. Then the men from both sides start singing carols and songs. Next comes request not to fire. And soon the unthinkable happens you start to see the shadowy shapes of soldiers gathering together in no man's land, laughing and joking and sharing gifts. Many have exchanged cigarettes, the lit ends of which burn brightly in the inky darkness. Plucking up your courage, you haul yourself up and out of the trench and walk towards the foe. The meeting of enemies as friends in no man's land was experienced by hundreds, if not thousands, of men on the Western Front during Christmas 1914. Today, more than 90 years after it occurred, the event is seen as a shining episode from among the bloody chapters of World War I. Spontaneous effort by the lower ranks to create a, a peace that could have blossomed were it not for the interference of generals and politicians. Reality of the Christmas truce, however, is a slightly less romantic and, and more down to earth story. It was an organic affair that in 
Some spots hardly register to mention, and others left a profound impact upon those who took part. Many accounts were rushed, confused or contradictory. Others written long after the event are weighed down by hindsight. These difficult aside, the true story is still striking precisely because of its ragtag nature. It is more human and therefore all the more potent. Months beforehand, millions of servicemen, reservists, and volunteers from all over the continent had rushed enthusiastically to the banners of war. The atmosphere was one of holiday rather than conflict. But it was not long before the jovial facade had was torn away. Armies equipped with repeating rifles and machine guns and a vast array of artillery tore chunks out of each other, and thousands upon thousands of men perished. To protect against the, the threat of this vast firepower, the soldiers were ordered to, to dig in and prepare for next year's offense, which most men believed would break the deadlock and deliver the victory. The early trenches were often hasty creations and poorly constructed. If the trench was badly sighted, it could become a sniping hotspot. In bad weather, and of course the winter of 1914 was a very, very dire one. The positions could flood and fall in. The soldiers, unequipped to face the rigors of the cold and the rain, found themselves wallowing in a freezing mire of mud and, and the decaying bodies of the fallen. Man at the front could not help but have a degree of sympathy for his opposition who were having just as a miserable time as they were. Another factor that broke down the animosity between the opposing armies were the surroundings. In 1914, the men at the front could still see the vestiges of civilization. The villages, although badly smashed up, were still standing, and fields, although pitted with shell holes, had not been turned into muddy landscapes. Thus, the other world, the civilian world, and the social mores and manners that went with it was still present at the front. Also lacking was the pain and misery and the hatred that years of bloody war built up. Then there was a desire on all sides to see the enemy up close. Was he really as bad as the politicians, the papers, and the priests were saying? It was a combination of these factors and many more minor ones that made the Christmas truce of 1914 possible. On the eve of the truth, the British Army, still a relatively small presence on the Western Front, was manning a stretch of the line running south from the infamous Ypres 
assailant for 27 miles to Labase Canal. Along the front, the enemy was sometimes no more than 70 to 50 or even 30 yards away. Both Tommy and Fritz could quite easily hurl greetings and insults to one another and importantly come to tacit agreement not to fire. Incidents of temporary truces and outright paternalization were, were more common at this stage in the war than many people today realize. Even units that had just taken part in a series of futile and costly assaults were still willing to talk and come to arrangements with their opponents. As Christmas approached, the festive mood and the desires for a lull in the fighting increased as parcels packed with goodies from home started to arrive. On top of this came gifts, care of the state. Tommy received plum pudding and Princess Mary boxes, a metal case engraved with an outline of George V's daughter, and filled with chocolates and butterscotch, cigarettes and tobacco, a picture card of Princess Mary, and a fact smile of George greeting to the troops. May God protect you and bring you safe. Home, it said. Not to, to be outdone. Fritz received a present from Kaiser. The Kaiser leech. A large Mirasholm pipe. The troops and a box of cigars for NCOs and officers. Towns and villages and cities and numerous support associations on both sides also flooded the front with gifts of food, warm clothes, and letters of thanks. The Belgians and the French also received goods, although not in, in such an organized fashion as the British or Germans. For these nations... The Christmas of 1914 was tinged with sadness. The countries were occupied. It is no wonder that the truce, although it sprung up in some spots, on French and Belgian lines were really caught hold as it did in the British sector. With their Morale boosted by messages of thanks and their their bellies fuller than normal. And with still so much Christmas bootery to hand, the season of goodwill entered into the trenches. A British Daily Telegraph correspondent wrote that on one part of the line, the Germans had managed to slip a, a chocolate cake into the British trenches. Even more amazingly, it was accomplished, accompanied with a, a message asking for a ceasefire later that evening so that they could celebrate the festive season and their captain's birthday. They proposed a concert at 7.30 p.m. with candles. The British were told would be placed 
on the parapets of the trenches. The British accepted the invitation and offered some tobacco as a return present. That evening, at the stated time, German heads suddenly popped up and started to sing. Each number ended with a round of applause from both sides. The Germans then asked the British to join in. At this point, one very mean-spirited Tommy shouted, We'd rather die than sing with Germans. <coughs> to which a German joked aloud, It would kill us if you did. <laughs> December 24th was a, a good day, weather-wise. The rain had given way to clear skies. On many stretches of the front, the, the crack of rifles and the dull thud of shells plowing into the ground continued. But at a far lighter level than normal. In other sectors, there was an unnerving silence that was broken by the singing and the shouting drifting over the main from the German trenches. Along many parts of the line, the truce was spurred on with a, the arrival in the German trenches of miniature Christmas trees. Tannenbaum, the site these small pines decorated with candles and strung along the German parapets, captured the Tommy's imagination as well as the men of the Indian Corps who were reminded of the sacred Hindu festival of light. It was the perfect excuse for the opponents to start shouting to one another, to start singing, and in some areas to pluck up the courage to meet one another in no man's land. By now, the British High Command the high commander of the BEF, Sir John French, against such behavior, other brass hats, as the Tommies nicknamed their high-ranking officers and generals, also made grave pronouncements on the dangers and consequences of parleying with the Germans. However, there were many high-ranking officers who took a surprisingly relaxed view of the situation. If anything, well, they believed it would at least offer the men an opportunity to, to strengthen their trenches. This mixed stance meant they had very few officers and men involved in the Christmas truce were disciplined. Interestingly, the German High Command, oblivion attitude towards the truce, mirrored that of the British. Christmas Day began quietly. But once the sun was up and the fraternization began, again songs were sung and, and rations thrown to one another. It was not long before troops and officers started to, to take matters into their own hands and ventured forth. No man's land had become something of a playground. Men exchanged gifts and, and buttons. 
In one or two places, soldiers who had been barbers in civilian times gave free haircuts. One German, a juggler, and a showman gave an impromptu and given the circumstances somewhat surreal performance of his routine in the center of no man's land. Captain Sir Edward Hulse of the Scots Guard in his famous account remembered the approach of four unarmed Germans at 0830. He went out to meet them with one of his ensigns. Their spokesman, Hulse wrote, started off by saying that he thought it only right to come over and wish us a happy Christmas and trusted implicitly to keep the truce. He came from Suffolk, where he had left his best girl in a three-and-a-half-horsepower motorbike. Having raced off to, to file a report at headquarters, Hulse returned at 10 to, to find crowds of British soldiers and Germans out together chatting and larking about in no man's land in direct contradiction to, to his orders. Not that Hulse seemed to care about the fraternization himself. The need to be seen to follow orders was the concern. Thus he sought out a German officer and arranged for both sides to return to their lines. While this was going on, he still managed to keep his ears and eyes open to the fantastic events that were unfolding. Scots and, and Huns were fraternizing in the most genuine possible manner. Every sort of souvenir was exchanged, addresses given and received, photos of families shown. One of our fellows offered a German a cigarette, and the German said, Virginian. Our fellow said, ah, right cut. The German said, no thanks, I only smoke Turkish. It gave us all a good laugh. Hulse's account was in part a, a letter to his mother, who in turn sent it on to the newspapers for publication, as was the custom at the time. Tragically, Hulse was killed in March of 1915. On many parts of the line, the Christmas Day truce was initiated through sadder means. Both sides saw the wall as a chance to get into no man's land and, and to seek out the bodies of their compatriots and to give them a decent burial. Once this was done, the opponents would inevitably begin talking to one another. The six Gordon Highlanders, for example, organized a burial truce with the enemy. And after the gruesome task of laying friends and comrades to rest was complete, the fraternization began. With the truce in full swing up and down the line, there was a number of recorded games of soccer. Although there were really just kickabouts rather than a structural match. On January 1st in 1915, the London Times published a letter from a 
a major in the medical corps, reporting that in his sector, the British played a game against the Germans opposite and were beaten 3-2. to two. Kurt Zimmisch of the 134th Saxons recovered in his diary. He recorded, the English brought a soccer ball from the trenches, and pretty soon a lively game ensued. How marvelously, marvelously wonderful, yet how strange it was. The English officers felt the same way about it. Thus Christmas, the celebration of love, managed to bring moral enemies together as friends for a time, even a short time. The truce lasted all day. In places it ended that night, but on the other sections of the line, it held over Boxing Day. And in some areas, a few days more. In fact, there are parts on the front where the absence of aggressive behavior was conspicuously well until 1915. Captain J.D. Dunn, the medical officer in the Royal Welsh Fusiliers, whose unit had fraternized and received two barrels of beer from the Saxon troops opposite, recorded how hostilities restarted on his second, on his section of the front. Dunn wrote at 8.30, I fired three shots in the air and put up my flag with Merry Christmas on it, and I climbed on the parapet. He, the Germans, put up a sheet with thank you on it, and the German captain appeared in the parapet. We both bowed and saluted and got down into our respective trenches, and the fired two shots in the air, and the war was on again. War was indeed on again, for the truce had no hope for being maintained. Despite being widely reported in British and to a lesser extent in Germany, the troops and the population of the both country were still keen to prosecute the conflict. Today, pragmatists read, pragmatists read, the truce was nothing more than a blip, temporarily lull, induced by the seizing of goodwill, but willingly exploited by both sides to better their defenses. And I out one another's positions, romantics assert that the truce was an effort by normal men to bring about an end to the slaughter. In the public's mind, the, the facts have become irrevocably methodized and mythologized, and perhaps this is the most important legacy of the Christian truce today. In our age of uncertainty, it is comforting to believe, regardless of the real reasoning and motives, the soldiers had officers told to hate, loathe, and kill could still lower their guns and extend the hand of goodwill, peace, love, and Christmas cheer. Well, uh, folks, that goes to show you that uh, even at, even bitter enemies, because because of what Christmas is about, Christmas is about the Messiah, the Child, the Prince of Peace. And one of these days, as you often hear that that song, "Why can't every day be like Christmas?" Well, it'll be better than that someday. For those of us that have called upon the name of the Lord, for those of us that have, who believe in that little child that was born that day in Bethlehem. Well, we're out of time for this segment. 
But we'll be back right after this. American Voice Radio Network is heard on Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices.
Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When his mother, Mary, was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a a just man, not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately. But when he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary for thy wife. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth the son, and shall call his name Jesus. For he shall save his people from their sin. All of this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, 
Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted as God with us. Then Joseph, being raised from the sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife, and knew her not until she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born the king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and are come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard of these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, And thou Bethlehem in the land of Judah are not the least among the princes of Judah. For out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had privately called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. And when you have found him... Bring me word again that I may come and, and worship him also. When they had heard the king, they departed. And lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came, and it stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they were coming to the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. And when they were departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, and take the young child and his mother, and flee into Egypt. And be thou there until I bring thee word, for behold, Herod will seek you and the young child to destroy him. And when he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt. And was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. Then Herod, when he, he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceedingly wroth. And he set forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem, and in all the coast thereof from 
two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of these wise men, that it was fulfilled that which was spoken of by Jeremy, the prophet, saying, In Ramah was there a voice heard, lamentation and weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and would not be comforted because they are not. But when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise and take the young child and his mother and go into the land of Israel. For they are dead which sought the young child's life. And he arose, and he took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. And when he had heard that Archelaus did reign in Judea, in the room of his father Herod, he was afraid to go thither, notwithstanding being warned of God in a dream, he turned aside unto the parts of Galilee. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. I'm going to now go back 1776 in December at the battles of Trenton and Princeton it was a cold a very cold and a very brutal winter and let's take a look back at the men our founding fathers those that that knew precious that freedom was so precious that they were willing to fight They bought our freedom with their lives. And so as we take a look back, let's start back in the days, and it was a cold and windy night. Back in the days of the American Revolution, men had to to decide whether or not to support the revolution whether or not to to enlist, and when to give money for a cause where the methods used are ones they might not like. We're going to be taking a look at the battles of Trenton and Princeton. As the story unfolds, try to imagine that you, yourself, were back there with General George Washington. What decisions do you think that you would be making? It was at Christmas, 239 years ago, when America was in her infancy, that by the the providence of the Almighty and the leading of the Holy Spirit, General George Washington led his ragtag army of dedicated Christian patriot soldiers into a battle against the British. The outlook for Victory seemed, well, it seemed 
kind of bleak at best. They were outnumbered 50 to 1. The little food and supplies and, well, extremely poorly armed. They needed a miracle, a real miracle. And God provided. These men loved their God and their liberty and freedom more than life. In December of 1776, George Washington and his army were in retreat. The British had surrounded them on Long Island, New York. But under cover of darkness and by the providence of God, the, the American army outsmarted the British and reached safety in the state of New Jersey. Washington, with fewer men than the British, began a fast-paced retreat across the state of New Jersey. With the retreat from Long Island, the entire country seemed discouraged. The Continental Congress was discouraged. The army was discouraged. The British wrote home that Washington did not dare to fight, and the war would be over in a few weeks. Little did they know that Washington's hope did not despair. But he kept faith in God. He told his men that if he had to, he would take his army to the backwoods of Virginia, which he knew so well, and make a last stand there against the British. On December 11th, in 1776, the Continental Congress called for a day of fasting and prayer throughout all the colonies. Samuel Adams said, Let America exert her own strength, and, and God, who cannot be indifferent to a righteous cause, will even work miracles, if necessary, to establish her feet upon the rock. Meanwhile, Washington's troops had reached safety in Pennsylvania. The British ordered that all extra food and supplies were to be taken from all families, even if the families were on the British side. Anyone who fired upon the British was to be hanged. Now, during this period of the war, a new type of British soldier appeared. The kind of the era in Europe we now call Germany had loaned some soldiers to the England to the King of England. These Hessians, as they were called, were promised that they could take anything and plunder they found from the Americans and become rich. Thus they did with zeal. The Hessian troops were known throughout America for their cruelty. 1,000 of these troops had been placed in Trenton, New Jersey, by the British General Howe. About the 25th of December, Washington told the, his officers about a daring plan. All the boats on either side of the Delaware River for 70 miles surrounding Trenton had been either obtained for use by the army or burned 
Washington planned to, to march his men to Trenton and take the supplies, then march to Princeton and capture the supplies there. All day on the 25th, Christmas Day, the Hessians had been celebrating. By nightfall, they were tired and ready for a good night's sleep. Little did they know that plans were being made and played out just across the river. Washington began his march at 3 p.m. with about 2,400 men. Each man had only 40 rounds of ammunition with him and three days of ration of food. Eighteen cannons were pulled by teams of horses. It was very cold, very cold that winter. And the night of the 25th was no exception. By the time the, the army reached McConkie's Ferry at twilight, why, there were large chunks of ice, and they were moving quickly on the river. Washington had sent several other generals and, and their men to to other areas around Trenton with a plan for them all to attack at the same time, about 6 p.m. But word arrived that the other generals would not be taking part in the attack. They had made their own decisions. One believed he should be in charge. Another could not get across the river in time a couple of others believed the weather was to be too bad for any type of attack. Still, Washington and his army remained determined. Now, folks, right about now would be a time to, <laughs> to think and place yourself in Washington's stead. You've done in that situation. Here, you had the plans, and you were going to come at it from four sides. And I know some of you have been in, in situations where, well, things don't always go as, as planned. About the same time, there was a, a small band of 20 to 30 American soldiers attacked a Hessian outpost and wounded about five to six men. The Hessians sounded the alarm, and they sent a company after the rebels. Shortly, though, after finding nothing, they returned to Trenton with the belief that it was just another small band of locals trying to annoy them. Well, so, life was soon back to normal. And, of course, here it was with the Hessians. There was a lot of celebrating. As the night went on, it became one of the worst in the winter. It was so very cold. The frost was heavy. The current on the river was fast, and the ice flows seemed to increase each minute. The wind blew hard, and at 11 p.m., it began to snow. As Washington's army reached the Delaware River, word was sent to the soldiers from Marblehead. They were 
from outside of Boston, Massachusetts, and were fishermen by trade. They were the ones who saved the army during the Long Island retreat. They would now once again play an important role. Their experience helped them to ferry the men across the river. It was a very, very slow going. Because of all the ice in the river, but by about 3 a.m. on the morning of the 26th, all the men, horses, and cannons were safely on the other side. It did, however, take another hour before everyone could be organized. They then began the nine-mile march through the snow and the ice to Trenton. The strong northeast storm of wind, sleet, and hail met them with, with each step. A small detachment of soldiers caught up with Washington shortly by following the bloody footprints left in the snow by the soldiers. Many of the soldiers were making the march with holes in their shoes, or no shoes at all, just feet wrapped in rags. When the army reached Birmingham, they divided into two groups. One group under General Sullivan stayed near the river, but shortly realized their guns had become wet and would not fire. Washington, whose group had gone down Pennington Road, sent order for Sullivan's men to use bayonets and to go into the town of Trenton. The soldiers had only to hear the words, and their bayonets were fixed. They were eager to go. Back in Trenton, the Hessians had been sleeping undisturbed. All the patrols had reported that all was quiet. As Washington neared Trenton, it is reported that he, he asked a man who was chopping wood, which way is the Hessian picket? The man who was afraid told Washington, I do not know. One of the Washington's officers rode up and told the men, You may tell, but this is General George Washington himself. The man then cried, God bless and prosper you. The picket is the, in that house, and the sentry stands near that tree. Thus Washington's men attacked the picket on Pennington Road. While Sullivan's men attacked the picket near the river. As Sullivan's men attacked, the, the Hessians ran out of their barracks, but were so startled by the attack that they turned and ran into the forest. At one point in the battle, Washington was riding in front of his army. And as they were forming and setting up six cannons, he was thus a good mark for someone to shoot. Although his horse was shot, Washington remained unhurt. The Hessians soon began to withdraw, leaving their cannons. They might all have gotten away except they refused to leave their plunder. They returned to fight, but were quickly surrounded and surrendered. The total action in the battle took only 35 minutes. No American lives were lost. 
At least 946 Hessians were taken prisoner. 17 Hessians were killed. And over 162 Hessians escaped to the British lines. Washington's prize was 1,200 small arms, ammunition, and six cannons, two of which were large, very large cannons. The Pennsylvania Lutherans wrote, To that hour, the light of the United States flickered like a dying flame. But the Lord of hosts heard the cries of the distressed and sent an angel for their deliverance. Friend was captured. The battle won. But the plan was not finished. Washington marched his men back across the Delaware River that night. After only a a very, very short rest indeed, and a little food. The troops were now worn out by cold, rain, and snow, in need of sleep, and the care of almost 1,000 prisoners. They again marched out into the sleet to cross the river. Once across, they would wait for reinforcements, supplies, and for the British General Cornwallis to come after them. Cornwallis, Washington knew, would be angered by the Battle of Trenton and would come after the American army. Washington had outwitted Cornwallis before. And he would do it again as Washington's troops regrouped. They realized that the, the enlistment of almost half the army was was up in only just a very few days. Washington asked the men to stay on and continue the battle. The, the troops believed in what they were fighting for. And with one mighty cheer said yes, they would stay. Each day that passed brought more volunteers, more soldiers. Also meant more money was needed to pay them. Washington and his officers began to borrow money by pledging their own personal fortunes. I'd like to just stop for a second today and think about that today. With our government. Folks, could you imagine today... Our congressmen and senators, can you imagine them pledging their own personal fortunes to keep America safe? Now, the Quakers did not believe in fighting, yet on January 1st, a man by the name of Robert Morris went from door to door in Philadelphia, which had a large Quaker community to raise money which was to pay the soldiers. By the next day, Morris was able to send Washington $50,000. Now folks, can you imagine that $50,000 in those days? I, that would be like half a million today. By January 2nd, over 5,000 men had joined Washington. That same day, Cornwallis, with 5,000 British 
and Hessian troops began to march towards the Continental Army. The British Army was harassed all the way by the local militia. About a mile from Trenton, 600 Americans under General Greene with two cannons stopped the British and the Hessians for a while. Greene and his men then quickly rejoined Washington. The British troops come up against the full American army. But Cornwallis was tired from the march and believed his troops were superior, so he decided to stop for the night. Cornwallis ordered camp made, and, well, he turned in for a restful sleep, believing victory would be his in the morning. Oh, but there was no rest, however, for Washington that night. All seemed to be falling in place for his plan. He knew well the back roads of the area by that time. It was soon discovered that the road to Princeton was left unguarded. Washington ordered a small company of men to keep large campfires going, dig trenches, and to make a whole lot of noise. The rest of his army quietly began to march to Princeton. By God's providence, the wind changed and became very cold. The roads, which a few hours before had been muddy, became frozen, which allowed for easy movement of the large, heavy cannons. The British, meanwhile, believed all was well and suspected nothing. About sunrise, Washington's army arrived outside of Princeton. Most of the British troops had been sent to join Cornwallis. The Americans quickly became and quickly began to to prepare for battle and set up the cannons but due to the fatigue from their march why <clears throat> they were a tad bit demoralized and they were a tad bit discouraged Washington rode out in front of the army and up to within 30 yards of the British lines while they were forming each side fired a volley. There was a panic. I'm sure in the hearts of the Americans, their beloved leader was in the path of the fire. The smoke cleared. And Washington, by grace, by God's grace, was there untouched. The whole battle was over in less than 20 minutes. 200 British were killed and 230 were taken prisoner. Only a small number of Americans were killed. Back outside Trenton, Cornwallis woke to the surprise of finding no Washington and no Continental Army. The cannons firing in the direction of Princeton told him that he had been tricked. Yes, he had been tricked again. Perhaps that is why the British called Washington the old fox. Well, Cornwallis quickly set out with his army towards Princeton, but reached it just as the last of Washington's troops were leaving. Washington and his men fell back to Morristown, Pennsylvania, knowing that since it was a 
a rebel stronghold the British would not dare to follow. The battles around Trenton and Princeton were the first American victories in the Revolution. Oh yes, it was a very, very clear message was sent to the British and the rest of Europe that America, yes, America intended to win this war. Within the month of the battles, a proclamation was issued by Washington that anyone sympathetic with British should move behind the British lines. The British lines at this point in the war included only the areas around Fort Niagara, New York Harbor, and, and Rhode Island. The rest of the country lay in the hands of the Continental Army. One British historian was to later write of how the American Army complained, not of the cold, but the lack of sleep, or even the lack of food, or the lack of money, or even the lack of clothes. <coughs> Only that Washington did not take better care of himself during the battle and was always in the middle of the action. The British had no idea of the love and respect this man received from the new nation. Washington's army was devoted to him. Today, America is once again occupied by enemy forces, folks. And we are a nation under the occupation of Islamic communists. They've infiltrated every area of society. They hate our God. They hate freedom. They hate the truth. And all that's good and all that's clean and all that's decent. As you look back on the story... You can see that a lot of things could have been different if people had made different decisions. If the money had not arrived, if the men had not stayed on, if the men had given up, if Washington had lost his faith. Well, the list goes on and on. Each man in our story made a decision whether to unite with Washington and support him or not to. Each man's decision had an effect in the history of our country. And again, today, America is at war with jihadists, with liberal, progressive, socialists, with communists, with Satanists, with, well... We're living in a day of the Antichrist system. And we're going to play a song here. And then we'll come back. And we have some more stories for you. So here, get ready as we just play another Christmas song. And then I was... So, well, taken back by this, this, this Papa Panov's special Christmas, then I might just read it again, but we'll see. We'll be back right after this with more.
brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. And there were shepherds in the same country abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And so the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this be a sign unto you. You shall find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger.
Christmas story begin with a tree? Uh, this is an article by Greg Laurie. I have given up on live Christmas trees. I, I went with an artificial tree about five years ago. And it's, uh, well, it's a whole lot easier. I pull that baby out, plug it in, and we're good to go. Then after Christmas, it goes back into the box. Artificial trees are looking a lot better than they used to. The first Christmas story began with a tree, but not our kind of Christmas tree. It was called the Tree of the Knowledge of Good and Evil. Why, this tree was located in the Garden of Eden, where the Lord had placed Adam and Eve in a literal paradise with radiant beauty at every turn, exotic wildlife, and the perfect climate. Best of all, there was no sin or guilt or shame. God himself would show up there every day to, to take a walk with his friend Adam. In fact, the, the Bible tells us the Lord would come to Eden in the cool of the day, which almost sounds as though God took on some kind of human form to walk and talk with Adam. God gave Adam and Eve only one restriction. Stay away from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't go there. So where do we find Adam and Eve next? Well, at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is so typical. That is just like us, isn't it? It's like saying to a child, do not go into that room. Where do you find that child next? In the very room you said it was off limits. Well, that's just our nature. Of course, you know that the rest of the story about Adam and Eve and how they listened to the serpent and ate the forbidden fruit. After that happened, they lost their sweet fellowship with God. And then the Lord came to the garden, calling out Adam, Where are you? Of course, God did ask that question because... <clears throat> he was oblivious to where Adam was. No, no. God knew exactly where Adam was and what he had done. And God wanted Adam to confess it. That is what parents try to get their kids to do when they get into trouble. When my boys were growing up, I had a, a little trick. I used to draw out a confession. I set them down and said... I already know what you did. I know everything. If you tell me the truth, the punishment will be less than what it will be if you lie to me. Tell me everything. And usually I would get some information I didn't know about. But after a while, they begin to wise up to this. And when I gave them that fatherly look and said, tell me, they would look right back at me as to say, no way. I've fallen for that before. The difference between earthly fathers and God is that God actually does know everything. He knew everything that happened at the tree of knowledge and of good and evil. He just wanted Adam to own up to it. But Adam didn't do that. Instead, he 
he made an excuse. First excuse we know of in human history. Then God gives us the Bible first, Christmas verse, addressing the words to the devil. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. The battle lines were drawn. God was saying to the devil, Game on! Messiah is coming, and he's going to crush you. The Christmas story didn't begin in the Gospel of Matthew. It began in Luke. It began in the Old Testament. No, it didn't either. Yes, it did. It began in the Old Testament. Jesus has always been there. John chapter 1 speaks about Jesus. says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that was made. And Him was life, and in that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness is not overcoming. In contrast to Matthew and Luke, which give us different aspects of the nativity, John takes us back, way back, way, way back. He points to the eternity past, going back further than our minds can even imagine or comprehend. Before there was a world, before there were planets, before there was light and darkness, before there was any matter, for that matter, before there was anything but the Godhead, there was Jesus. Jesus Christ, co-equal, co-eternal, and co-existent with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. It was with God And he was God. Jesus was deity in diapers. God became an embryo. He did not become identical to us, but he became identified with us. In fact, he could not have identified with us more closely than he did. It was total identification with us. Without any loss of his identity, he became one of us without ceasing to be himself. Jesus, who was God, became a man. When we think of the first Christmas, we think of it as the birth of Jesus, and technically it was. But that is not when Jesus began. He has no beginning, nor no end. He is the Alpha and the Omega the beginning and the end. He is the first and the last. Yes, there was a moment when God made a decision to descend from heaven to earth, be born in a manger as a helpless little infant, Isaiah 9, 6. That sums it up perfectly. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. 
and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, a Mighty God, an Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. From our perspective on earth, the child was born, but from God's perspective in heaven, the son was given. It was when God became a man. Now, that was an excellent article. As we are here, one more Christmas, and... uh, at this time of year, it's it's a better, bittersweet time of year, if you will. For for many, it's a great time. It's the time they look for all year long. In others, it's one of the most lonely times of the year. And yet, for those that love the Lord, you'll never be alone, because he said he would never leave you or forsake you. And you know what? He's the only one that ever existed that it could ever absolutely positively make that come true. You see, none of us can say that with all surety because we're fallible and our lifespans are short. But God is not. And when he tells us that he will never leave us nor forsake us, he means it. He always does what he says. And out there, when this time of year, when everybody's giving gifts, you know, so much has become so commercial, and yet so many people fail to realize that that God gave the greatest gift that anyone could ever receive that night when that child was born, when God came into this world. And with that, folks, brings salvation. For those of you out there, I would I would ask that you stop and think tonight about what is the greatest gift that anyone could ever receive. Can anyone ever, ever expect more than eternal life and immortality? That's what God had come. And that's what God offers us. So if you're listening to me out there tonight, I hope that uh, you'll ponder that about that child that was born. And then if you have not received the greatest gift of salvation, that you go to the Gospel of John in chapter 3 and you'll read that. Until then, this is Pastor Sanders. And for all of us here at What's Right, What's Left Ministries, And from all of us at Doers of the Word Baptist Church, we're wishing you and yours out there that this would be your safest and the most blessed Christmas, your best Christmas ever. Until then, good night, God bless, and always keep fighting the fight. listening to the voice of the Christian resistance. What's right, what's left. Hosted by Pastor Ernie Sanders. To learn more about our ministry, please visit us online at www.wrwl.org. Please tune in next time for another edition of What's Right, What's Left.
It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas Everywhere you go Take a look at the five and ten Listening once again With candy canes and silver lanes of glow It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas Toys in every store But the prettiest sight to see Is the holly that will be On your old front door Pair of hop-along boots and a pistol that shoots is the wish of Barney and Ben. Dawes that'll talk and we'll go for a walk is the hope of Janice and Jen. And Mom and Dad can hardly wait for school to start again. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. Everywhere you go, there's a tree in the Grand Hotel. One in the park as well It's the sturdy kind that doesn't mind the snow It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas Soon the bells will start And the thing that will make them ring Is the carol that you sing right within your
what Christmas is all about? Sure, Charlie Brown. I can tell you what Christmas is all about. Lights, please. And there were in the same country shepherds, abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them. And the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. He shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in the manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown.
Oh, that's enough. Let's not overdo it. Now, wait a minute, boys. Let's go. Now, wait. Theodore, just a minute. Simon, will you cut that out? Get off.
downside for the ride, downside for the land. Like some blitz and all the hills of reindeer pulling on the rain. Bells are singing, children singing, all is merry and bright. Hang your stockings and say your prayers, cause Santa Claus come tonight. I come Santa Claus, I come Santa Claus, I ride down Santa Claus Lane. He's got a bag that's filled with toys for boys and girls again. Just the same as you. 
Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, 
Sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.